0: Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina, because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it
1: starts now.
0: Good morning, welcome to Wake Up Carolina, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. But I am a Georgia Bulldog today because at about 3.30 this afternoon, I'm leaving the friendly confines of the PD, heading down to Colleton County, the Walterboro area, to um, go to a, uh, a political fundraiser. I'm not going to a political fundraiser oh. in a long, long that's time. Today. Yeah, that's okay. today. Herschel Walker cool. will be in Waterboro, um the guest of George Rogers. <laughs> now, I can't imagine what George offers to this debate. Um, I'd love to see George and Herschel c- kind of set a table up uh, because they're having a little VIP session before the fundraiser. and um And, and the invite actually says, you know, Georgia – senatorial candidate herschel walker is um please join Georgia's senatorial republican candidate herschel walker um as he's joined by special guest george rogers (laughs) i'm going like what does george know i mean george doesn't have any interest in politics at all i mean we've gotten to know george over the years pre-covid From the uh, the rival show we do at the end of our uh, at the end of football but, season, but this is where friends Carolina and wait. loyalty come. I would imagine in, right? fellow yeah. Heisman Trophy winners yeah. and George has told me off the uh, off the air that he and Herschel go together a lot. Uh, that, that they'll meet in Charlotte or Atlanta and they'll fly to New York to do some of these Heisman commercials. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I just love to be a fly on the wall when George and Herschel are flying together to. Um, to New York City to do some of these. Because uh, the first thing George told me, is it's hilarious what he says, and he says, they don't pay you anything. They'll buy you a ticket, and they'll put you up in a room, and they don't pay you anything to do that. <laughs> I mean, all he's thinking about is, how you know, how am I getting paid? Right. Am I am I getting paid? But, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that because uh, I'm a big Herschel Walker fan. You've heard me say mm-hmm. over the airwaves that I think Herschel Walker is the greatest college football player I've ever seen in my life. That includes Tim Tebow. That includes – um, you know, the, the the guys from Alabama recently or Trevor Lawrence at Clemson who are all distinguished and elite college football players or former college football players now. But Herschel's the best I've ever seen. Uh, Bo Jackson would probably be the second best I've ever seen. George would be on that list. But I think George would agree that um, there's something unique about Herschel. You know, George was a really, really, really good college running back. Now, let me say that again. Georgia was a great college running back and a really good pro for a brief period of time. Um, college, I mean, the NFL running backs don't last long anyway. The life shelf of a NFL running back is, uh, what, five and a half years for it? I mean, I'm talking about the good ones. The, 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 the life expectancy is probably a year and a half for those that get cut, don't make it, get injured. But, I mean, if you have a decent run and the NFL is a running back – you probably pay or play six years or so. Um, I think George played nine or ten years, and he was highly productive in the first five or six years, and then you just give out a gas. I mean, you just your knees are beat up, your hands are beat up, your arms are beat up, But um, and I would imagine Herschel would be the same. But I, I'm telling you, Rev, as recently as 60 days ago, I saw Herschel giving a speech somewhere. Cat looks like he could play today. I mean, he really does. He looks like he – could play he's in solid. Athens but oh, I mean, he's he is the first freakish athlete I mean we used the, the term not freak you know Jadavion Clowney was a freakish athlete um Javon Curse was a freakish athlete Randy Moss was a freakish athlete I've never seen anybody as freakishly athletic as Herschel Walker 6'2 225 or 30 pounds um ran as an alternate on the U.S. Olympic team I mean imagine that 62 230 pounds and was the first alternate on the 4x100 US American relay team um and then all of a sudden he decides he wants to be a bobsledder, and he's a um, he's a member of the US bobsled team now the the distinguishing factor of Herschel's career you ready for this he didn't sign with the NFL he signed with the New Jersey Generals out of um, out of college and Donald Trump was the owner and that's how they created this this friendship so Herschel's always had an interest in what makes the world go around. Um, Danny Ford tells the great story, former coach at Clemson. Herschel had narrowed it down to Clemson and Georgia. I mean, Danny knew. I mean, I've heard Ford say Danny knew that Herschel was going to be, wherever he went, was probably going to win a national championship. Went to Georgia, they won a national championship. Um, So Ford knew how special Walker was going to be. Herschel told Danny one day that he was probably going to Georgia or join the Army. You know, he said, Coach, you've been kind to me. You've been gracious to me. Um, Clemson has been nothing but, you know, sincere and honest and dedicated in the way they recruit me. But but I'm going to probably stay here in Georgia or join the Army. And Danny said he started sending, like, like Army recruiters by his house. And he said, if we weren't going to get him, I surely didn't want Georgia to get him because back then they played Georgia you know, every single year. And he said, you know, I would rather Herschel be in the Army and me not have to devise a defense to try and stop him than I would him going to Georgia <laughs> and every year trying to be a part of devising a defense. But yeah, I'm excited about that. I really am. Um So what do you think his chances are of becoming a senator? Oh, I think they're 50-50. I absolutely do. He's going to win the Republican primary. And and there's some uh, there, there's some intrinsic loyalty there. I mean, Herschel Walker is an icon in Georgia. And I'm telling you, when you listen to Herschel speak, I mean, the, the grammar's not perfect, and the, sometimes the execution is not perfect. By that, I mean he's not as polished as we're accustomed. He will not be mistaken for Ted Cruz. But he's a very authentic, sincere man who is, appears to be unbelievably comfortable in his own skin. I mean, imagine this. Herschel's had some issues. I mean, he's fought some mental illness and depression over the years. Herschel signs up to run for office. He knows that's going to be fair game. So he's going to have to address some of these um, some of these personal issues that he's dealt with over the years. And I think it takes enormous courage and conviction. There's a better word. I think it takes enormous conviction to say, look, I know I've got some skeletons in my closet. I know there are some things that will be exploited on the campaign trail. But I want to do this. And I think it's important enough. And I think he was encouraged by Trump. And I think he's been encouraged by a lot of the, um, the people in Georgia. But let me ask you this, Rev. Don't we talk a lot about relatability? Sure. Okay. Very few people are six three two thirty run like the win. I mean, that's a real exclusive club <laughs> that Herschel's a member of. But when he begins speaking and articulating himself, you know what he sounds like to me? The South. I mean, he sounds like Georgia. And he says things in the South. Uh, uh, imagine this an African American Republican football hero in a Southern state. Uh, I'll take my chances with Herschel. Once again, the Democrats are going to well fund. I read the other day where they've had. Six hundred contributions from people in Hollywood that total—I don't know—four and a half million dollars or some outrageous <laughs> amount of money. I mean, it's the typical—you know—the um, people of the people of Silicon Valley or the people of Hollywood believe they're entitled to choose who the next uh, senator from Georgia is going to be, and um, and it, it ain't Herschel because he doesn't—he's um, not politically correct enough. He's not temper—you know—he's of. um he, he had some depression issues and mental illness issues, and he's a football hero. I mean, we don't want a football hero being our U.S. senator, or, but it's not your, your U.S. senator. That's the point I'm trying right. to make. Um, so what, what happens in Silicon Valley is perfectly fine in Silicon Valley. This is, um, this is the state of Georgia.
1: And really, the issue for them is he has an R behind his name.
0: Sure. An R behind his name. He stands against, um, I mean, Herschel's made it known. He's not for all this transgenderism, and I think that's kind of sort of the way he says it. I mean, he says, man, I'm just not for all this transgenderism and, 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 you know, um, sexual fluidity or gender fluidity. And, um, he sounds, he sounds to me to be a very commonsensical, um, down to earth guy. And I'm excited about going down tonight. Got invited by a friend of mine who, um, has a close affiliation with a big supporter of Herschel. He said, you want to go? I said, ah, it's a long way during the week, but, but I thought about it and yeah, I, I want to go support Herschel. And, um. My name may show up on a contribution list here for uh for hopeful or, or or senator to be Herschel Walker. Let's go to the phone.
1: Here's David in the PD. Hey David. It's a beautiful morning.
2: Hey, how about that Rick and
1: Ballkin?
0: Mm-hmm. One with wow. ninety ninety percent of the vote. I what think. a margin man, of victory.
2: My, my gosh, man. And and what do they say about how about them cowboys? How about them dogs? Uh it's amazing what can happen when you've got some moats, you know, action and work and employee people when they get up against somebody that's in the business of some sort of community activism or whatever. But you talk about my man Herschel. Uh, one thing I wish, you know, he could do this to, when he and Trump meet, just get that humility, get, give Trump a little bit of that humbleness. Because I tell you what, if there was ever somebody that could just, you know, it amazes me, he can turn from the Hulk to the Flash in a minute. And we saw that against the Gamecocks. I think he's decade. both.
0: I think he's a manifestation of the Hulk and the, um, and the Flash. Well,
2: I, I, hey, um, <laughs> and, and then, but the, the liberal, what I, 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 wanna use, I don't want to use that term liberal, whatever the progressive. They're going to turn all that stuff against that cat. And if he had a D on his jersey, they would promote him as overcoming this and that and blah, blah, blah. But because he's got an R on his jersey, they're going to try to tear his butt up. But anyway, I'll leave you at that.
0: Thank you, David. That's an interesting point. And I thought about that last night. If Herschel were a Democrat, an African-American uh, running in Georgia as a Democrat, and we started talking about mental illness or depression or um some sort of uh, anxieties he's had in his, in his past, um, it would be overcoming adversity. It would be, a, you know, champion of cause. I mean, it would be a man who um, who fought these battles and won these battles, and this is the kind of man we—but he's a Republican, and he opposes transgenderism or transsexuality or, or transhumanism. There's a new word out there now, transhumanism. Um, I'm a big Herschel Walker fan. I've always been a big Herschel Walker fan. I'm a big George Rogers fan. George doesn't have any business running for Senate, but but I think Herschel has. Um, kind of. I mean, he's really he's committed himself to try to better understand um the the politics of the world. And and I think David raises another point. If anything, Trump can learn from Walker. Nobody can learn to be six two two thirty run like the wind. You don't learn that. I mean, that's God given. You can, you can perfect that. You can hone that. You can become even more um successful at it. But but Herschel's always seemed to me ref to be a genuinely humble person, even when he was setting records and you know was the um, the Heisman Trophy winner, uh, finished third his freshman year. There, there's a, there's a connection here between George and Herschel. Um, George wins the Heisman his senior year in 1980. Herschel's a freshman and he finishes third uh, in that voting, and then he wins it the next year. And um, and then he signs an NFL contract. That, excuse me, a USFL contract. And then he gets involved in this big trade. Remember the Vikings and Dol- uh, the Cowboys. The Cowboys had Herschel Walker traded him to the Dolphins for everybody that ever made the Cowboys great. After that, I mean, it was one of the great <laughs> all-time trades in the history of the NFL. And uh, you can tell I'm a little bit excited about going down to Waterbury today and um and and meeting one of my I don't want to say childhood heroes. I don't know if I have any childhood heroes. But a guy that I look, because I was not a kid, but I, mean, I was born in 63. So I'm not a kid in 1980. I'm a teenager, uh, very impressionable. And Herschel Walker is a part of my past. And you've been talking about him on the show. I mean, long before he got into politics. Yeah, I, I want Herschel to win, not because he's a Republican. I want Herschel to win because he's Herschel. And he seems to be relatable to the very people that um, that I grew up around and had respect for and revered. And um, in all honesty, this sounds weird. But Walker reminds me of the people I grew up with. Once again, very few, in fact, none were six two two thirty, could run a four three forty, but they all shared similar stories and similar similar life experiences, and I, and I guess that's why I'm excited about Walker and the chances he has to. Win. And I'm proud of South Carolina. I mean, I'm proud of George. I'm proud of our neighboring state. You know, the Palmetto State says, yeah, let's invite Herschel over to our state and raise him some money and send him off on his way. I don't have any idea how many people will be there, that there will be some gawkers, there will be some hangers on, that there'll be some folks who don't have any interest in politics, but but they remember Herschel Walker from their youth as a football hero, a nemesis to the Gamecocks and Tigers, for that matter. Now, now Clemson fans will tell you this. I've heard this all my life. You know what Herschel Walker and George Rogers have in common? Neither scored a touchdown against their beloved Tigers. And that's kind of a feather in their cap. I mean, to be honest with you. Two Heisman trophy candidates excuse me, two Heisman trophy winners, two of the um the all time great college running backs from our neck of the woods. Um, and neither scored a touchdown against a Clemson fan. Excuse me, against Clemson, and you can't talk with a Clemson fan more than about twenty minutes and bring up the name Herschel or George. <laughs> That, that's kind of um, that's one of their default positions. <laughs> and it's something to be admired. I mean, it's, seriously, sure. that, that's a big deal. You play George every year, you play Herschel every year, and you figure out a way to keep both of those cats out of the end zone. It's a hard day's work. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll be back and we'll delve into um, not not the crossroads, the convergence of athletics and, uh, and politics. We'll go strictly politics. Back in a minute. You know, there are two things I want to add real quick, and we'll jump around this morning. But there are a couple of stories here I want to follow. That some of the mainstream, some some out of the mainstream. Uh, I want to go back to. You know, they say that the Oscars considered removing um, Chris. No, not Chris Rock. Uh, Will, Smith. Will Smith from uh, the grounds of the so 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 walking on stage um, and slapping a man is not grounds to get you removed from. I mean, in other words, if there was a debate. About whether or not to remove him from the grounds, from the premises, uh, uh, basically take him out of the building, um, getting thrown out of the joint, I guess is the way we would discuss it or describe it. Um, if if walking on stage and just just deciding to slap another human being, assaulting a person, th- does not get you um, removed, then what does? It's interesting. The debate was had amongst the executives of the Oscars, those in charge of um, facilitating the affairs of the Oscars. And uh, they said they huddled together and they decided not to. Well, what do you have to do for them to decide to? The other thing I want to add, go on the Blaze News and read an article by Jason Whitlock. The name of the article is, what if Will Smith had, excuse me, what if a white man had slapped Chris Rock? I mean, what sort of outrage would there be? What sort of, um, what, what sort of commentary would the mainstream media offer if indeed, let's say Harrison Ford, let's say Harrison Ford gets out of his chair walks on the, uh, on the stage and slaps Chris Rock beside the face. What sort of response? And, uh, and Jason Whitlock, an African-American journalist, does a great job of um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit sarcastically, but he really addresses what, uh, what he believes would have happened. Um, would Barack Obama have issued a statement saying, Chris Rock could be my brother? You know, would Al Sharpton, uh, Sharpton won't call for a boycott, Um, But if a white man had slapped Chris Rock, he argues that, of course, there would have been a boycott. And Obama would have personally, you know, absolutely. Mm. Um, The NAACP, Black Lives Matter, all these other um, organizations would have taken an absolute stance. Um, so, So it's not about assault. It's not about, you know, bad jokes. I mean, it's about race. And I think most of us understand. And I'd say this with, I mean, I'm as white as the day is long but had a white man walked on stage and slapped Chris Rock for a, an unsavory joke, whether he had a right to do that or not. I mean, you know, we debate whether Rock's joke went too far. Um, we, I, probably both. You know, probably insulting your wife is not a real smart thing to do, but comedians insult. That's what comedians do. They tell jokes and very often insult. And you better have thick skin if you're going to be a part of these affairs. But, but read um, Jason Whitlock's article on The Blaze. It is so true and revealing and interesting about the selective outrage of, um, of certain constituencies within the good old U S of a let's go to the phone. Here's Verd in Marlboro County. Morning, Verd.
3: And good morning,
0: Ken. Good morning. Uh,
3: if, if Will Smith hadn't slapped, uh, Chris Wright the other night, mainstream America wouldn't have been known but the Oscars was even on.
0: You're right. Uh, yeah. mission accomplished.
3: Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, neither here nor there. Uh, everything now is about politics. Uh, the book's close today at 12 noon uh, statewide, and we'll have our candidates for the June, bri- June 14th primary and the November 8th general election, and it looks like we're going to have a lot of candidates to do, so uh, it seems like uh, I think the governor's race has got like 10 different people running, but uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, few months, and uh, of course our goal as a state Republican Party is to get everybody to vote straight Republican, and that's going to be our goal. The last two election cycles, we have Beat the Democrats twice and beat them by over 15%, I think, uh, in 2020, something that we had never done before. And that's going to be the big uh, in- influx for us to do in uh, November is to get everybody to mark straight Republican ballot.
0: Verd, what are some races that we need to be paying close attention to? I mean, obviously, the Tom Rice Russell Fry race will get a lot of our attention, and we're going to make an announcement here. I think we can make the announcement, if I'm not mistaken, Rev. Maybe we can't. I think you guys are almost ready to make, to make that announcement. Uh, We're going to participate in a debate between um, the candidates for the 7th Congressional District. Um, Some of us know about the Katie Arrington-Nancy Mace race. Um, Are there other races out there that we need to be aware of? Well, if
3: I was retired, I would have probably jumped in that District 55 race uh, since it takes up my whole town now, 1,334 voters, which is probably a 70-80% Republican block. Um, I think that's going to be an interesting race. Uh, I mean, Jackie Hayes has been a great uh, House member for about 24 years, and, you know, but then again, as Drew McKissick always says, everything is about numbers, and in November 2020, uh, Dillon County went Republican all the way across the board except for the Sheriff's race, and that's probably attributed to the absentee ballots. And then four years ago, uh, without a Republican Party in uh, Dillon County, governor of only lost Dillon County by 46 votes with about 9,000 people voting. So... Uh, I think they have uh, two two Republicans, uh, Tracy Pelt uh, ran last time for sure. If he's shot tended on the Republican side, I think a detective from Deplorance uh, Airport. If uh, you got an independent in that race, and then you got uh Campbell, I think that's ran against Jackie the Fourth. So that that's going to be an interesting race, you know. If uh, there's a huge uh, if there's a huge Republican turnout, which I think there's going to be in November because of what's going on around the country with uh, Biden and the Democrats, I, I think Jackie is probably going to be in a Race for
0: his life. Interesting. Thank you, Ver. Appreciate that. I'll say this. One of the demographic shifts in America today is the um the white rural Democrat. There are no more. Uh, but the Democrat Party is has gone so far to the left. There are a lot of people grew up I and mean, I I grew up in rural America and historically, uh my, my friendlies, those in my circle of influence, they were by and large Republican, but they would vote for that white Democrat because they didn't perceive it to be radically liberal. They didn't perceive it to be about transgenderism and, you know, and, and pro-abortion and, and anti-traditional marriage. And, and it was kind of an unholy alliance. I'm not sure that I agree with you, but I'm going to vote for you. And I think there's been a mass exodus by, I think there are a lot of white Democrats, excuse me, white voters in rural America who just say enough is enough. I'm not doing it anymore. Um, there's there's been this um. I mean, there's an old joke in South Carolina politics. Well, it's kind of a new joke, but an old way of saying it. Uh, well, the last white rural Republican turned the lights out. But I mean, there just aren't any white rural Democrats left any longer. I said Republican uh, meant Democrats, and um, and I think this election may be the first election where you see that solidified. By that I mean you've got a white Democrat running in a rural district. And the whites have always voted for that white Democrat because uh, he's one of us. He goes to church with us. I don't know that they will this time. I really don't believe they will. And that's going to make it even more complicated for white Democrat officeholders to maintain their office. And I guess to some degree, that's what Verge talking about with Jackie Hayes. And there's some examples of that in our part of the country. Um, Roger Kirby comes to mind. Roger is a, um, a Democrat from Lake City that historically has depended on kind of, a you know, the the white rural voter who doesn't believe he has another choice and the African-American who have historically voted for, um, you know, the Democrat. Well, all of a sudden you got a white Democrat running against an African-American Democrat and the African-Americans historically had voted for that African-American Democrat. And I just think the white rural voter is going to take a pass on the Democrat Party could not be wrong. I mean, we'll find out in due time. But but I just you know, there, there's a mass exodus of white, rural, um, former Democrat, they're not really ide- ideologues. I mean, they don't pledge allegiance to a political party or not. They, they kind of choose the candidate that they believe is going to best represent. But those people have become so disenchanted with the Democrats. I just don't think they'll vote. We'll find out. But, but I just don't think um, they'll show up at the poll. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, you are on the air.
4: All you need to do, that cyber white Democrat comes up to you, and ask, say, hey man, you need to vote for me because the other guy's just crazy. You know, and all of that. You know, you need somebody there that's going to be on your just well, then pull up their voting record and see who, see how they voted. If they voted every single time for every radical left wing um, issue that you don't believe in, then what's the difference between voting for him and the, and the other guy? You know, now here's the real question that you need to ask our uh, non-racist Democrats and our non-racist white Democrats and our non-racist black Democrats, how many black Democrats will be willing to vote for a white Democrat over another black Democrat? You know? So, here you go. But, you know, I tell you, getting back on this transgender stuff, you know, it's very, very concerning. There goes another hill kid, and you got to fight. You got, you that's another hill to die on because we, we can't give them any of this. You got to call, either you're a fool, an atheist, or either you're lying, but you can't distinguish between a man and a woman. Before I went in for my client, I think I heard the professor say, well, my breeze is up in this shit. What if she had a hysterectomy? What if you had a vasectomy? Are you going to say you're a woman now? And when you start talking about from that point of view, so what is the guy going to do? He's going to get his testicles taken out, have a vagina, ovaries, uterus, have his breast implanted with mammograms so he can actually have a baby. So that way you can call him a, a woman. I mean, these people are godless. They're evil. And then you come, I watched Tucker last night, and guess what you find out? That these big corporations, these big pharmaceutical companies, are figuring out a way to make money off of this godlessness. They're now promoting drugs to stop young boys and girls into going into puberty to make it easier for them to have their sex changed with kids. So stopping your little boy from becoming a man, stopping your little girl from becoming a woman until she can really decide her identity. Man, let me tell you something, son. If you don't see the evil in this, you know, and I'll tell you another thing. I, you know, I, I passed the point of trying to be nice. Do you really want to spend whatever it costs to send a kid to college to have a, have a professor telling your child that kind of crap or having your, your, your preschool teacher or your first grade teacher telling your daughter or your son that kind of crap? So I tell you what, if we don't call these people out and we just sit there like a day's to let this go, Bad as as, uh, as, I, as a lot of this is our fault for letting it have to go this far, it's time to stop it, brother. Time to stop
0: it. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, and going to that point, I think Breeze makes a very valid point. He always does. He has a colorful way of expressing himself. But Breeze is, um, I mean, Breeze reads. I mean, Breeze and I talk occasionally about other, other sorts of things. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a fair debate to be had about what the highest marginal tax rate in America should be. I think there's a fair debate what the military budget should or should not be. Um, I don't think that's godlessness. I mean, I think that's fundamental disagreement. Um, I think the the you know the cheaper the marginal rate, the better the economy is, the more empowered the people are, uh, the more limited the government is. that's my that's my philosophy. That's my ideology. that's that's what I believe in. Um, but I'll address your concerns legitimately if you can argue honestly and with credibility uh, 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 an opposite point of view. Ken, here's why. The tax rate doesn't need to be twenty percent, but rather thirty-three or four percent. Now I disagree with that, but but I, I I don't think there's evil intent there. I mean I think you you you're, if you're a believer in big government, if you're sympathetic to government, you're, you're probably naturally inclined to be a believer in big government. Well, if you want big government, guess what you need? You need more and more money, so you can print money or you can confiscate money from the private sector. But but when you start defending, you know, um, late-term abortion, gender neutrality. Allowing a kid, eight years old, to enter a medical contract. Um, allowing a parent to prescribe or a doctor to prescribe a drug that an American pharmaceutical company manufactures that slows down the natural process of puberty and adolescence. I think that's godless. I mean, I do. I don't think raising taxes is godless. I think it's bad, but I don't think it's based in some, some evil or maniacal belief of rearranging God's order. I don't know that God says a lot about you know, what the marginal tax rate. But I think God clearly identifies things that are evil and against his will. God's will in our world um, can't be snuffed out. It can't. I mean, God's going to win at the end anyway. It's a little bit like um, th- there's a football game, Rev, that was played last Saturday. I've got it recorded. I wouldn't say VHS, but I'm dating myself now. I've got it recorded, and I know. I know that the Game Cops kicked the winning field goal with three seconds to go, but with eight minutes to go, it looks like there's no way they win. I know the game has been played, and I know that we win, we being those who believe in the redemption of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. I didn't say you had to believe that. That's what I fundamentally believe. So in the end, I know we win. But when I spoke to a group last week about, you know, um, conservatism, Christianity, and courage, the one thing I tried to articulate, that I don't think we're doing a good job, and I don't know that the church – has done such a good job of this. we got some pastors who listen to this may take exception with what I'm about to say. Um, I believe the reason church attendance is in decline is we're not being as forceful in telling people to be convicted about standing against certain things that we believe are evil. You don't have to stand against higher taxes. I mean, we can argue that. I mean, I think it's bad. Um, Some think it's good. But I think some of these things we're debating now, you know, what the definition of woman is. How much power and influence are we going to allow Disney to have over the Georgia State, excuse me, the Florida State politics or political system? I mean, is Disney so big and so wealthy and so powerful that they can intimidate certain elected officials into, you know, um, agreeing that the language of the bill is too aggressive? I mean, no. Th- 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 as Bree said, those are heels worth dying on, and I do believe. That this transgenderism this gender fluidity um this sex change culture we live in that god makes mistakes god allows you to be born a boy when you should have been born a girl and i changed my mind after i listened to the bgs and i you know i should have listened to merle haggard probably being a little more masculine (laughs) mood i mean the absurdity of that but what is the absurdity rooted in i mean is it philosophical disagreements no i think it's godlessness i think breeze is exactly right and i think some of those things have to be addressed and I think Breeze argues a very valid point. If someone tells you that they're a moderate Democrat, check their voting record. Check, check where, where they stand on transgenderism. Check whether they believe that, that a woman is a woman is a, and a man is a man. Check what they voted on when it comes to funding or not funding late-term abortions via Planned Parenthood. Check their record. I mean, they're telling you they're a good and decent, and normal, and, and moderate Democrat. Maybe they are. Don't take their word for it. Look at how they voted. And if they voted with the Democrat Party, and they probably have, there's a lot to be concerned by. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Bobby in Hartsville. Morning, Bobby.
5: Good morning. Um, Ken, did you listen to uh, Glenn Beck yesterday? I did not. <laughs> well, it, it made me think you did because of what you were talking about the last couple of minutes. He had, uh, I can't remember the guy's name it Was a pastor. I think he's from Virginia, but he was in there and sometimes, somehow he's, uh, has to do with that faith lens, uh, and, uh, where they're going around to churches and talking to pastors and leaders and trying to, uh, help them understand that they can get up in the pulpit and talk about, uh, being registered to vote and things like that. And, uh, they, they said that that, that, uh, faith lens was, uh, really, one that was responsible for uh youngton being elected over in virginia and um so i I think that 's what needs to happen you, you talked about how you went out and told and we need leaders to go out and do that and uh he made mention that if if, if some of the mega churches would start doing that they could they, they could almost single handedly win uh elections in their area and um I just think that's something that we need to do, and pastors don't need to be afraid to speak out against the evils that's going on, and uh, trying to get their people uh, registered to vote. I'll take it off the air.
0: Thank you, Bobby. Well, the main thing they're afraid of is the IRS and losing their tax-exempt status, becoming politically activist. I mean, there, there's a fine line there. But but I, and when I addressed the group last week at uh, in Lake City, here was my point. I am a I am a person who believes in the power of prayer. I mean, I pray every day. Um, I pray for a lot of different things. I try not to pray for myself until I pray for about 10 or 12 other people in my world who deserve prayer more than I do. At times, I've got things kicking in my life that, that I do pray about. When my son was addicted to opiates, I woke up every morning before I got out of the bed, prayed to God, please help him and us get through this day together some way, somehow. So we all have burdens that we carry, and prayer is kind of a relief. We, we talk to an almighty God who we know hears us, but, but I don't think prayer is enough. I mean, I'm going to pray for the country, and then I'm going to sit on my duff and wait on God to fix it because I prayed to God, I petitioned God, and God said prayer to Him. Uh, you know, and and you know He'll answer all prayers. But but I think God requires us to be activists. I think God requires us to do more than just pray for the nation. I think we have an obligation. The obligation of a believer is to help heal some of the some of the problems of the world. And I think to say that, you know. I prayed for our country this morning. What else did you do? I mean, did you engage? Did you interact? Did you challenge? Were you somewhat of an activist? And I think, you know, we've all become ah, lukewarm to those principles. I think all of us, and I'm talking about believers, and I'm talking about Judeo-Christians. But they're, they're, you know, despite not being a Christian, those who ascribe to a biblical worldview and have a set of Judeo-Christian values, I think you're compelled. I think you're obligated. I don't think it's a, a, a choice you get to make you're called to make a difference in the world. And the way you make a difference in the world is pray for the world, but engage actively in trying to make the world a better place, obliging and obligating itself to some of these biblical worldviews. And yeah, I think if we did more of that, if we would stop just praying, I mean, let's continue praying for the nation because I think God, uh, you know, honors prayer. But I think we have a responsibility to pray and then perform. Let's be a part of the debate and goings on. Back in a minute. Let's go to a couple of things Charles touched on for a second. Um, Let's go to the the Rickenbaugh winning the Senate seat, the late Hugh Leatherman. uh, We had a hotly contested Republican primary between Jay Jordan and Mike Rickenbaugh. Rickenbaugh wins that by about 500 votes. Um, It's a Republican-leaning district, but it's the least Republican-leaning of all the Republican-leaning districts. In other words, if there was a chart from red to blue, and somewhere in the middle was a reddish-blue or a bluish-red um, District 31. In other words, this is not the district where Bob Jones University is in. This is not, you know, one of the most conservative districts in Horry County. Um, this is a, a more diverse district. It's still a Republican district. And Rick and bah ran a highly effective campaign, both in the primary and and in the general. I think you said somewhere about 9% turnout in a special election um, primary, excuse me, at a special election general that, that in, involved a, uh, a competitor who didn't spend any money, who didn't campaign much at all. That's a pretty impressive number to have 9% um, turnout. I would have imagined 5 or 6%. And at the end of the day, you get bored when I do this, but I think you respect that. I mean, politics is math. I mean, it is the math of the matter. Um, if Herschel Walker runs in Georgia, let, let's use Rick and as an example. Mike Rickenbaugh ran as an African-American Republican. Normally in that district, there's about 250 African-Americans who cast ballots. Rickenbaugh ran as an African-American Republican, and 1,000 African-Americans voted. Now, did they come vote for the Republican, or did they come vote for the African-American? In other words, if an African-American Democrat were running against Mike Rickenbaugh, where would the African-Americans have lined up? So there's no question that outreach worked. It was effective in going and finding African-Americans who you believe would be inclined to vote for someone who looks like them. I mean, we're all guilty of that to some degree. Um, you know, I like Herschel because he's a Southerner. And he's a football hero. That's not a good reason to say I want you to be a senator, but, but it's good enough for me. I mean, the, the, these affinities we have, the, these adorations that we express very much influence how we vote. But when you look at what Rick and Bob did— um, once again, normally in that Senate race, because I looked at the numbers, um, I'll give an example. Jay Jordan got more votes than Leatherman ever got and lost by 500 votes. So Rick and ba was highly effective in engaging an audience that don't normally vote in Republican primaries and convincing them it's worth your time. Now, now, once again, where do we go from here? What if an African-American Democrat runs? Where do the African-Americans align? So it's a little bit, I mean, you can ask this question. If you are a Rickenbaugh detractor, you know what you can say? He convinced Democrats to help him win the Republican primary. Or you can say, if you're, if you're a Baugh supporter, you would say Rickenbaugh enlarged, the, the, the I mean, he made the tent bigger. He engaged an audience that we historically have said just won't vote Republican. So So where do we go from here? I got three words. I don't know. I don't have any idea what the answer to that is. Those African-Americans historically have not voted in that Republican primary until an African-American ran. Will they go vote for a white Republican if an African-American Democrat is running? Nobody knows the answer to that. You don't know. I don't know. Political scientists from sea to shining sea don't know that. But it is a political reality that that for, for Republicans, here's the strategy in Georgia, and it's really everywhere in the South, the way Democrats win is to get 30% of the white vote and get the African-Americans to turn out where they comprise 30% of the electorate. It's kind of a 30-30. I mean, we used to call it the 30-30 club. Remember, Jose Canseco was in the 40-40 club, 40 home runs, 40 stolen bases. Um, I think that's a very exclusive club. There there aren't a lot of people in the 30-30 club, 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. But in politics down south, because there's a heavy African-American population, Um, You get to Connecticut, you don't worry about the African-American vote. just doesn't much matter. Um, The white Democrat is how you win that. But the 30-30 rule down south is um, 30% of the white vote. If I'm I'm a Democrat running in the south, I've got to figure out a way to get 30% of the white vote and get enough African-Americans or energize the African-Americans so they turn out large enough uh, in large enough numbers to comprise 30% of the vote that's the 30 30 rule down south it doesn't apply in other states that don't have um a lot of african-american vote but um uh, but rickenbaugh did that i mean rickenbaugh i mean obviously got 30 percent of the white vote i would argue he got i mean in the in the general he probably got 99 percent of the white vote uh have you ever seen a, a margin as big as that margin it was about I've 90 percent yeah wyoming I mean when someone runs as a Republican in Wyoming against a Democrat, they win um 10 When I was That's running when I was running for lieutenant governor, I remember Caton Dawson. He's the former chair of the party. We were talking about spreads and margins and you know, the the margin of victory and we knew our polling data and Cato and, and I mean um, excuse me, um uh Kayton, I mean talking about our friend Cato. Caitin <laughs> said, um, this ain't Wyoming. I mean, nobody beats anybody by 30 percentage points. Now, you can do that when one candidate spends a lot of money and he runs a very aggressive campaign, high name ID. Um, There there were a lot of things to be optimistic about Mike Rickenbaugh. I'll tell you this, Rev, I'll level. I mean, you know, I was a Jay Jordan supporter. I made that publicly known. Some got offended by that and felt that was not my role. Well, I mean, to me, I would have been more irresponsible to be a Jordan supporter and not uh, not disclose that over the air. So I'd pick the horse in this race. But I knew, I mean, in some of the uh, private conversations with the Jordan campaign, I knew that it was going to be a struggle. I mean, I, I just knew it. I mean, I, I knew where the numbers were. I knew what the dynamics were. And I knew. And I'm going to give Rick and Bob a lot of credit. Now, where do we go from here? I don't know. But Mike was able to, to reach out to African Americans who historically, the numbers are what the numbers are. I think the all-time high in African-American turnout in the Republican primary is somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 or 60. And there were 1,000 African-Americans who cast ballots. Now, now once again, if you're a Rick and Bob detractor, you know what you argue? You know what you argue. You say, well, he convinced Democrats to vote in the Republican primary, so we've got kind of a Democrat running, you know, as our senator. Or you can say— He engaged African-Americans where they are, convinced them that the Republican values and principles are more in line with their values and principles. And I would encourage us to go down that road because we know how stale, pale, and male we are, and we can't be that forever. We just simply cannot close ranks, um, shut down, and say, hey, we love this part of the way it is, and if we lose elections, we'll lose them our way. I think that's an absurd argument to make. And I think Mike Rickenbacker is important. For the GOP in South Carolina Tim Scott is important for the GOP in South Carolina Um, we need more minority representation within the grand old party and in a weird way as much as I tried to um, convince some of our listeners that Jay Jordan was the better choice uh, I think we're in a very intriguing moment in the Republican Party in the state of South Carolina and Herschel Walker is going to live that same life I mean think about it Herschel's going to now now Herschel well, I mean, Mike was a celebrity, sold cars on television, he and his wife and family. Many of you watched his family grow up over the airwaves. Herschel's a celebrity in Georgia. I mean, he's a football hero. But but if if, if the guy running against Walker, is it Ossoff or is it Warnock? It's one or the other. I can't remember I which one I don't it remember. is. But it's Ossoff. I mean, that'll, that'll be a little bit different because Warnock's an African-American. Ossoff, John Ossoff is a uh, is a white guy. But But if the Democrat in Georgia can get 30% of the white vote and energize African-Americans to turn out and and comprise 30% of the vote, guess what happens to Herschel Walker? He probably loses. But if those numbers are 28 and 27, 26 and 25, Walker wins. And I think we should all celebrate that we're we're having more and more African American candidates run as Republicans at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. Here's here's my big win. You ready? I mean, I, I'm not king of the world. Don't deserve to be king of the world. But if I were, I'd love to see an African American mayor run as a Republican, an African American city council member run as a Republican, an African American county council member run as a Republican. That's no. That we know we've shifted. I mean, that's a paradigm shift. That's a um. I mean, that's uh, when you look at the political spectrum, one end to the other, um, senator, congressman. OK, there's some national notoriety there. But but local campaigning is just blood, guts and feathers. And and I'd love to see an African-American, a young African-American run as a Republican for a local seat. I'm talking about a school board. Well, school boards don't declare, um, you know, their party allegiance. I don't think, do they? I don't think a school board candidate says whether they're a Republican or a Democrat. I think so. I mean, there's a big movement about nonpartisan local elections. I'd probably support that. But right now, we live in the world we live in. And you do have to declare your, you know, you, you don't, when you file, you file as a Republican or a Democrat. And I would love, I'd be so excited about seeing a uh, an African-American file and run for a local seat. Uh, we had one run against Tony Moore um, in the uh, in the last. We just don't have enough of that. Corey, Corey, yeah, Corey Dixon. Corey Dixon ran as a Republican, uh, was not successful, but but that you know we, we got to get to a place where that's not unusual. Um, it's the it's the norm instead of the exception. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry.
6: Good morning. Um, I wanted to just quibble on one, well, not really quibble, but maybe may enlarge on one point that you made about the rickety ball campaign and it. That You had mentioned that um, African-Americans, and I guess largely we would assume they were Democrats, came and voted. And the conclusion you reached was that the Republican message resonated with them, that we've expanded the party. I don't think that's how Rickenbaugh campaigned. I didn't. I know that he was a Republican, and unabashedly so, but when he campaigned, he didn't say, and we need to be good Republicans, and we need to uplift the Republican spirit. He, he articulated conservative values. He talked about supporting businesses and supporting families and supporting God. But he didn't throw the word Republican around a lot. And I think that the word Republican has been beaten up pretty hard by the media, the Democrats, and, and not that he was running away from it. He absolutely read right off the Republican Party platform, but he didn't use the word Republican a whole heck of a lot. And I think that that is indicative of, A, his sensitivity to what people feel and think and believe, and also it does say I think Republicans have some work to do. If I were to sit in a church and they told me that being a Baptist could save me or being a Methodist could save me, and they didn't mention God, I'd have a problem with it. And I think we have a lot of Republicans like that. They love the Republican Party, but they don't really love its platform. Well, they don't adopt and embrace its platform, and then we get these folks elected, and they go to wherever they go, and they don't live out our principles. And I think that what made him successful was that he campaigned on those principles. He didn't say, come be a good Baptist. He said, follow these principles with me. This is what I support. And I think Republicans need to work on that. I think they have an identity in their party instead of having an identity in their principles. And that's why we keep getting betrayed, so to speak, after the election. So I, I think that this that's the trend we need to pay attention to as much as reaching across and, and, and speaking to other constituencies. I think when you espouse those true conservative ideas, you find that there are plenty of Democrats who still believe in those things. But if you go by branding, you're going to lose.
0: Well said. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. My buddy Robert Kahaley would say it this way. For every dollar you send to Washington in the name of conservatism, the Republican Party believes they're entitled to 30 percent of it. I mean, Kahaley expressed to me, I mean, it it really frustrates me to no end that there's a um, there's a branding element in the Republican Party that thinks a lot more of itself than we think of it. And I don't want to call names, but it's those people who have gotten unbelievably wealthy off of party operations and party platforms and party agendas. And um, somebody said a second ago, "Faith wins." You know, when I'm skeptical of a um, of a a, a a Christian movement when it when it has a name, I get real skeptical the first time I hear somebody has named something. Faith wins, or or follow me to heaven, or you know. Um, uh, a website. I mean, I understand marketing and branding, and I you got to have outreach, and you got to put your message out to the masses. But but Kahaley, I mean, I think Robert may have said it on this show one day, and Robert's inside the belly of the beast at a level that I'm not. I mean, I, I'm a pretty good candidate. Robert is a strategist and a pollster, and uh, you know creates messaging and all he does twenty four seven is try to try, try to better understand what it is out there that you believe. I mean, Robert would Robert would sit down with Larry. Robert doesn't care about Larry. Robert wants to know what Larry believes about politics and the party and the branding and how we can do better and entice more people to be a part of this. But but Kahale's frustration is, is has historically been for every dollar that you send in the name of making America more conservative and more principled and more biblical views, um, the, the, a certain percentage of that uh, contribution is going to people who may or may not share your belief and sentiment. I mean, the Tea Party's a perfect example. I mean, the Tea Party was organic, it was genuine, it was sincere, it was deficit spending and worried about government out of control, and all of a sudden, eight or 10 Republicans figured out a way to hijack the movement and each one of them put probably $20 million in the bank, and the movement just kind of went by the wayside. Why? Because it was not, I mean, it was hijacked. It was stolen. It was confiscated by people who may or may not share your sentiment. The, 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 the Democrats do a much better job of, of taking your contribution and, and putting the contribution to work in the name of liberalism. I mean, Haley says it's ninety seventy. About ninety cent of every dollar you send to Washington really goes to try to and to try and promote and advocate and I don't know, get into action or, or get into policy liberal agendas. Uh, only about seventy percent in the name of conservatism. In other words, the Republican Party believes that they're the gatekeeper for American conservatism, and I guess that's the the struggle we're enduring right now. I mean, you've got all of these outlets, media outlets. I want to get to this in just a second. The great reset. You know, we talked a little bit about that yesterday. Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Um, you'll own things. You won't own anything and be happy. I mean, that was kind of the, the Davos manifesto. I want to get into that in just a second because when I expressed the the, the concern that a lot of business people have about government you know, regulations, stipulations, mandate, taxes, or the cost of doing business. It kind of leads me down the road, Rev. I'm going to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist now. It leads me down the road of believing it's very intentional, it's very designed, and it's intended to frustrate. I mean, if I won't own anything and I'll be happy, why Why would I give up ownership of things? Because they were too burdensome. that They were too demanding. They were too expensive. I can't run this business. My taxes are too damn high. My regulations are too intense. I can't, I can't sleep at night for worrying about what the tax rate is going to be next year or what the property tax is going to be next year. Um, uh, all of a sudden, they're paying my employees to not work. Well, I mean, what, what does that, where does that lead you? Does that lead you to be more optimistic about owning your business or less optimistic about owning your business? And I think that's the fundamental of the reset. I mean, I really believe that government intentionally, I'm not saying every local government official, you're not in on uh, this. This is uh, far above mine in your pay grade. But I do believe there are people operating in the fifth dimension. And I think their, their, their intent is to make my life as a property owner or business owner so complicated, so full of anxiety, so pessimistic that I throw the towel in and say, okay, guys, let's go to state capitalism. I mean, let, let me own it, but you guys can run it. And we'll share the profit however you see fit. Now, is that likely to happen? I don't think so. And I'm going to make a counter argument here in just a couple of minutes. So I got a phone call, but let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side.
1: 843-661-0937 is our number. You're talking about Republicans. And, of course, you were invited to be co-chair when President Trump came to town a few weeks ago. And you talked about Republicans in the room. Are those Republicans you're talking about?
0: Some of those Republicans, yeah. The disagreement about me being a co-chair or not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, very very much so. Th- th- there's an element within the Republican Party, but there's an element the Democrats as well is just not as powerful and influential. But there's an element within the Republican Party that believe the party belonged to them. And I think that's what Larry's touching on. Uh, Mike Rickenbaugh chose to not associate with those people who believe the Republican Party belongs to them, and if we're going to make a change to the platform, an agenda item, or a vote, then you got to run it by them first. They've earned that right. That's that, the was, insider-outsider well, I mean, argument.
1: But the, the, and, and, yes, and the yes, outsider and, is very popular And I days. don't think
0: anybody is surprised that there's insiderism and outsiderism. The point Kahaley tried to make is the insiderism trumps the outsiderism in the Republican Party until Trump gets to town. And when Trump gets to town, um, he's such a force of nature, he's such a political blunt instrument, he doesn't care about insiderism, outsiderism. He's kind of an insider and an outsider, and he obliterates the political norm, and there's a great degree of um, disgruntlement and resentment toward not just Trump, but all of us who find ourselves more um, liking of the, the message of Trump than having to kiss the ring of the Republican godfathers— Um, there's a better way to explain it. And I think what Larry is saying, I don't put Larry's words in Larry's mouth, but I mean, Mike did not run from being a Republican. I mean, I think Mike is a, is a proud Republican, but Mike chose to, um, distance himself from those political godfathers. I'll give you another example of insiderism, outsiderism, um, And I don't think that the Jordan campaign wouldn't mind me saying this because this is water under the bridge now. And those guys have kind of made amends. And they'll, you know, I think uh, Representative Lowe was here Friday and said they've met, they've talked some of these things out, and you know, the 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 local delegation better work together or they'll be highly ineffective. You can't have one guy going one way and another going another way. But but there there was a there was a moment in time early in the campaign, and this would have been the clincher in days gone by. Reb, here's a good example. Remember the first um event that jay jordan had and everybody who's anybody was on that list i mean remember sure. what we were, i mean you looked at the list and you said wow i mean i don't know that i've ever seen uh you know such a high level of support amongst the influential people in the community well a lot of the outsider you know what they don't like that I mean, they're tired of these 20 or 25 or 30 people getting to call all the shots. And I was a little bit skeptical. In fact, I think I may have said, um, guys, I don't think you should release that list. <laughs> you know, I mean, if all those influential people are supporting in, t- in, in normal political climates, that is the stamp of validation. That is the stamp of approval. Let's get on that train because there's no way to stop it. And I think Trump has disrupted that political order. And I think when somebody has a list with all those influential Republicans. All those um, th- those Republicans who have dominated the Republican Party. See, I'm using the Republican, Republican, Republican. Um I think I think you pay a price for that today. I think Rickenbaugh portrayed himself. I mean, what was the first ad Mike ran I'm an outsider and I'm a business guy. I mean that that, that is gold. Right now, I an I'm an outsider and I'm a business guy. That is gold. Why did um, Why did the disagreement happen within the state party when I was asked to be a co-chair? Nobody in the GOP asked me to be a co-chair. You know who asked me? Save America. The Trump crowd were the ones that wanted me on the team. The state GOP won't know no part of me. Why? Uh, they don't think they can tell me what to do and where to go and how to line up. And some of these um, some of these historical Republicans who pledge allegiance to the Republican Party that um, they just, they kind of want to control this so so when Trump comes to town this has so little to do with the Republican Party and and all about save America and make America great again and and uh, you know conservative populism and nationalism and all that and the Republican Party's trying to find its place here. It's almost like I know that they've lost so much influence and one of these days they'll realize it but right now, I mean, they're fighting tooth and nail to convince you that the reason Trump won is because he was a Republican. I'm here to convince you the reason Trump won is he was an outsider, period. And I think Mike did a good job of establishing himself as an outsider, and there was no way Jordan could. I mean, there, there was no way Jay Jordan could say, vote for me. I'm the outsider. Um, outsider, insider? Historically, give me the insider. May not like it, but he's going to win. Today? Nah. Give me the outsider. Let's go to the phone. Here's Brian in
1: Paxville. Good morning, Brian.
0: Good morning, y'all. I've waited so long about and I
7: forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but um, uh, what, I, what I was going to ask, Ken, and, and you two, uh, we see these uh, former Democrats, and I use that term loosely, uh, turning to the Republican Party, uh, changing parties. I'm concerned, and I don't, I'm just asking your opinion. Uh, I'm concerned that they're coming over to infiltrate uh and in the future you know they're going to they're not going to vote the way they should they they say they're republicans now they say they america first you know they say they're going to be conservative now but they weren't before so what's changed and what what's going to keep them from you know getting getting on the ticket getting elected and then saying hey i'm going to do I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, what I said doesn't matter. I'll leave it with you.
0: I don't know the answer to that. I think that's the million-dollar, billion-dollar, trillion-dollar question. You don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I have some opinions, and I've had conversations about, you know, are they infiltrated the campaign? Let's use Rick and ba campaign for an example. Um, did 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 750 more African Americans vote? um expecting some sort of deal down the road? I don't have any idea. I don't know the answer to that. Did 750 Democrats vote for Mike Rickenbaugh because he's an African-American? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Did 750 Democrats sit down with Mike Rickenbaugh and um, and agree that the Republican Party probably offers a better path forward for their plight in life? I don't know the answer to that. So, so, so a lot of these things are complete speculation and conjecture. I don't know and I think the, the, the great part of all this is, and I keep going back to Springsteen, there's a scene in Springsteen on Broadway when he, when he recounts being a kid in Asbury Park or in Freehold, New Jersey, and he says, you know, they were leaving town going to chase the dream. And he said, I didn't have a care in the world. I didn't have a dollar in my pocket nor a care in the world. And he said, it's probably as happy as I've ever been in my life because I had a blank sheet of paper daring me to write on it. That's where we are in the Republican Party right now. There is a blank sheet of paper daring us to write on it. Are we going to acquiesce to traditional conservative um, ideological forces? Or are we going to k- kind of go our own way and make our own mark? Um, I was at the event, the Trump event, speaking to some of these aficionados and insiders, Kahaley um, being one, and there's this um, there's this disagreement that a lot of um, insiders have about Trump's influence. Is it waning? Has it waned? Well, I mean, I think it's waned because he's been out of the public eye. I mean, you know, the media still drag him in because when Biden does something stupid, you know, you got to talk about Trump to take the, the spotlight away from Biden. And uh, and Biden's going to do stupid things because he's alive and he's talking. And anytime Biden's <laughs> alive and talking, he there's a good chance he's going to say or do something that doesn't make any sense. So you bring Trump up to kind of, you know, sidetrack the attention and, and get you paying closer attention to Biden, or excuse me, to Trump than Biden, but um, but but we, we have this opportunity. Now, all it is is a political opportunity. Charles was talking a second ago, Barbara Arthur. I mean, I think Barbara has expressed herself in a very aggressive fashion that resonates with a certain element within the Republican Party. Um, there's still historical dynamics that, that are unavoidable, inescapable. 53% of the vote is still in Horry County. I mean, that, that's just a reality. You can be as, as great a candidate. I'll give an example. When, when I was confronted about whether or not, in other words, a, a, a group representing Trump interest um, asked me to come to the beach. I've told this story. I rode to the beach. We sat down, and, um, and they were looking for an inland candidate who had some name ID and had kind of been around the block. Well, that got a, I mean, that's me. You know, I've, I'm an inland candidate. I've, I've held office before, and I've been around the block. I kind of know the way the game is played. We sit down for about an hour and a half, and out of that comes a, a question I posed to them are y'all asking me what is too much Trump and what is not enough Trump? Nah, to some degree we are, so we kind of, we, we bantered about on that for for a while, but but then I, I made the comment. I said, okay, let, let's say that I run and I win. Let, let's say that your organization and Save America and Trump comes and does for me just what it did for Russell Fry um i'm the chosen one i'm the guy that trump decided to endorse and he's got my back and uh, along with that comes the the support of the trump universe and save america super PAC and uh, all the advantages within what happens in two years when an inland candidate runs against somebody maury county who didn't vote to impeach donald trump i just think you're left hanging there so so this is the election that decides the next congressman, but I don't know that it decides. In other words, if Barbara Arthur can sneak up on everybody and shock the world and come from nowhere, and I don't want to give the lady credit, I see signs everywhere. I'm talking about Horry County. I'm talking about Georgetown County. I'm talking about Florence County, Darlington County. Everywhere you go, you run into a Barbara Arthur sign or a billboard. Now, she's not up on television because that costs a lot of money. And I don't think she's raised in money necessary to put her message out in broadcasting. She's been a guest on this show twice. She'll always be a guest, and she generates show. a
1: response from sure. our listeners. You by better the way. believe
0: it. I mean, she she would be a candidate that has uh, you know a voice of outsiderism and anti communism and a couple of other ingredients there. I just don't see a way she wins. I mean, I think her her support is intense, but I think her support is very limited. That's just my opinion. I could be proven as wrong as the day is long. Dr. Garrett Barton a physician from Chesterfield um, sat in the studio. And, and we've talked a couple of times and I think he's as fine a man as there is on this planet. I think he's a competent man. He's a, he's an educated man. He's a, um, he's a caring and giving and considering man. I just don't see a way you get there. I, I Ken Richardson school district uh, board chair in Horry County, elected County wide. Um, I just think the Trump endorsement is the game changer. I could be wrong. None of this is, um, is set in stone. I've said a lot of things over the year for 10 years. Some have been right. Some have been wrong. Um, I just think this race boils down to an incumbent who has a lot of money and a built-in network of support in Horry County against a guy who Trump endorsed. So this is the Trump-endorsed candidate who happens to be Russell Fry versus Tom Rice. How does this play out? My concern for an inland candidate, any inland candidate, let's say Barbara Arthur catch lightning in a bottle and wins or Garrett Barton catch lightning in a bottle and wins. In two years, you know what they're going to do? They're going to run against an Horry County candidate who didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump. And I just don't think the I don't think the lift is worth uh, the effort. Uh, What I say, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. That's kind of the way I looked at it. Let's go to the phone.
1: We have Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe.
0: Yeah, good morning, guys. Mostly, if you
8: follow the money, you can figure out 99% of everything that's going on. You know, you got Romney out there saying Trump would would disband NATO. That, that couldn't be further from the truth, you know, than if you said it's daytime at midnight. What they're afraid of is losing the money that all these NGOs and the Trump made them realize what they were doing was to their own peril. They weren't, you know, providing for their own defense. So I think they're starting to realize, Trump, there's a lot of truth in Trump. And more and more people realize that if the United States is not number one, who is? And you look to China, and we have to be that. Big bear against them, and the stronger the United States is, the better the world goes. But when you got people like Romney saying no, Trump would disband NATO, that's that's horse manure. That's you know, like they can never get rid of the the civil rights movement, no matter how fair, uh, how far we've come, because so much money goes into that. You know, just. Like Tucker Carlson was talking last night, the transgender, you know, the same sex marriage, they had a a budget of like $20 million. Once that got passed, they should have disbanded because they did what they wanted, but no, they went on the transgender and now their budgets over $80 million. But you were talking about property taxes and all this before, you know, it's already started biden's budget wants to tax unrealized property gains you know capital gains i mean unrealized think about that for a minute you know your house might be it might be worth three fifty thousand dollars like my insurance says mine is but i paid sixteen thousand to have it built am i supposed to pay tax on three i i'd have to sell everything i got to pay that tax and so will everybody else and this is just the start of it people better wake up and understand that the only way we got to go is republican so the rest of these clowns do nothing but lie and that's a fact of nature y'all have a good
0: one thank you Joe. appreciate that you know i've I've broken this biden tax plan the spending this budget the fundamental problem with this, with this plan, that's not going to pass, and I'll get to Romney in a second, but, but the proposal is to force some taxpayers to pay an income tax where there is no income. I mean, fundamentally, that, that's in, in, in one sentence. I mean, we can go to the percentages and we can go to gyrations and, and political opinions and where the wind's blowing, but, but the, the essence of the proposal is that they force an income tax and, and taxpayers to pay that income tax where there is no income. I mean, the absurdity of that, that's the word I used yesterday, the absurdity of that, but the reality of it, that's where, that's where the Democrats are, and this is where I begin to go down this conspiracy theorist road. And, and I've read more than you probably care to know on this Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and um, is it the Great Reset or the Great Escape?
1: Uh, I'm glad you said that it's not going to pass because nothing would surprise me these days.
0: Well, it's not going to pass. Okay. Well, they, they, Manchin would never vote for this. I mean, you think about it, Rev. I mean, I understand the, b- the, the billionaire tax. I mean, that, that's, that's demagoguery. I mean, that's all it is. That's demagoguing. Uh, and it works politically. You know, the haves have taken advantage of the have-nots. To some degree, there, there's, there's some credence there. But but the, the, the reality is um, asset values rise and fall. I mean, it always has. You you buy a – I mean, from baseball cards to fine art to watches. I mean, I've, I've watched things online about watches. I mean, there are people now, you know, paying twice sticker price for a Rolex because they believe it's going to appreciate in value. But that's an investment that people make. Classic cars. I mean, I, once again, I wrote down on my sheet baseball cards. I mean, there are people buying – you know investing in baseball cards that's not income that's simply not income and and to to force taxpayers to pay an income tax where there is no income proves to me there is no limit but I mean, there, there there is no line of demarcation there is no out of bounds which how much of your money the democrats want and believe they're entitled to back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number let's go to the phone here's michael in florence good morning michael
9: good morning so uh so i'm I'm listening you know a a few weeks ago you made some comments about uh, glenn beck like he's a uh, conspiracy nut and ironically i've only started listening to him because he follows your show but um He was talking about the Great Reset on his show about six months ago, and I'm hearing you talk about it. And uh, after him, I'm hearing uh, Dan Montino, who I don't know how much credibility this gives him, but he's in Rush Limbaugh's old spot. You know, so everybody's talking about the Great Reset. In fact, I I have Glenn's book. But um, the the other thing I wanted to comment on is I'm not – You know nothing against Mike I mean I I saw him at the uh, the debate with way George and you know he seems like a an upright kind of guy and I don't want to take anything away from him but I'm sure
0: we lost you sir (laughs) I am so sorry we lost the last sentence or two that you had to say Call back yeah call back and we'll put you back yeah are you there out yeah, here okay we, we, we lost we, we lost it you said. for about 15 seconds there i'm sorry uh,
9: i i was just saying the high gas prices had to help mike right in box
0: gotcha thank you sir appreciate that you know the only exception i take with beck and yeah let's give beck credit i mean he's the guy that you know but i mean if, if, if every day you come up with a conspiracy theory and Someday you'll be right about, you know, things are conspiracy. But a lot of these guys go to extremes as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what's right or what's wrong. Uh, This is my opinion. I don't believe that the Great Reset, if that's what we want to call it, is part of this conspiracy of global financial elites that want to depopulate the planet. And if they depopulate the planet, um, they can more easily institute one government one government rule, one government order, um, that COVID was engineered to kill a bunch of people so we could get to that point in place quicker. Um, I do believe that Klaus Schwab, um, head of the World Economic Forum, is a dangerous man. And I think he has aspirations counterintuitive to America's best interest. I just I just don't go down the road of the financial elites collaborating one with another with politicians and their desires to depopulate the planet so they can more easily institute this one-world order or this um, globalist or this high-minded internationalist. That's what we used yesterday, and COVID was to speed up the process. I mean, some believe that. I just can't go that far. That's a lot of coordination as far as I'm concerned. Do we have time for a call, or you want to take a break? Uh, I think we can squeeze in a call from Frank in Darlington.
1: Hey, Frank.
10: Hey, Ken. How you doing? Hey, Frank. Uh I want to bring up a little something I've been coming up with that's not being covered in the media. When Biden came in and decided to pull us out of Afghanistan, this was not a United States operation. It was uh, a NATO operation. Not only did he abandon Americans in Afghanistan and our allies our NATO allies at Afghanistan, he snuck out in the middle of the night, pulled our troops out and abandoned them. Now he's done the same thing in Ukraine. We had an agreement signed with the Budapest agreement that we would protect their borders if they would willingly give up their nuclear weapons. So we gave them to Russia. Russia was a signatory, we were a signatory, the United Kingdom was a signatory. Biden's doing a good job of promising that he's going to deliver these weapons, but just like when he was doing Hunter in the previous administration, Obama's, he's going to hold up the money unless you do what I say do. He's slow walking the arms to Ukraine. He's promising, but they're not getting the arms. And in Turkey yesterday... They uh, decided that they didn't want the United States to protect the Ukrainian border. I, I read
0: that as well. We got to take a break. I'm sorry, hard break. Top of the hour. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hour number three in store. Eight four three. What's I, I just said? The number. Why don't I say they, it again? You can't say it. I'm enough. trying to read this. I mean, you know, one of what was telling? Reading? Well, I mean, when, when the when the Russian warship advised the the Ukrainian, uh, I don't know the 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 battalion to to put down their arms and they wouldn't be attacked the, the the ukrainian said you know go blank yourself and he's receiving some distinguished honor today uh from the ukrainian government um that really i mean when you think about it, that was very early in this war and that really set the kind of the tenor uh the ukrainians were severely outnumbered outmanned out militaried um but didn't roll over and i think putin was caught incredibly off guard and, and I may, you know, I mean, the, the option is on the table. And I've read from some of these military leaders, you can't say, well, I don't trust the military leadership until the military leadership says things that you find agreeable. I mean, you still got to be careful about or skeptical or cynical about what uh, their, their trustworthiness is or not. But I do believe that when that Russian, excuse me, yeah, when that Russian battalion confronted the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians said, go blank yourself, I, I think that had a lot to do with Um, the mindset of the Ukrainian military and, um, and I think that probably convinced NATO to react more positively to enforcements, you know, making their way down uh, to Ukraine by enforcements I'm not talking about boots on the ground. I'm talking about military armaments, making their way out of the hands of the Ukrainians to give them a better chance of being successful. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike.
7: Oh, great show as always. Uh, just a, a tremendously diverse and, uh, uh, interesting uh, broadcast you have just about every day. And, uh, but, uh, that a couple of these things, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is really the Biden presidency. I don't know who's running things up there and who's directing him. But, uh, Joe Biden, uh, corn pop, uh, you know, wore him out years ago. And, who knows who's directing him but uh the the man is obviously not with it at all, and he gets wound up and he gets emotional and spills out a wor- word salad every once in a while but uh you can't he he's not measured he's not controlled that he, he doesn't look like anyone that I'd want to do business with personally um uh, but uh the these these things i don't i don't think you should make any mistake about this uh the ukrainians have been uh heroic you know uh they're they're like they're like the troops in the in the battle of the bulls or at the Alamo they uh there's no there's no quid in them and uh, they've they've survived a lot they survived the Nazis. they survived stalin and uh they'll survive putin but, uh, they're taking tremendous losses and without equipment. And make no mistake, this administration is slow walking the equipment over there to them, uh, that they really need to come combat this, uh, Russian incursion, this Russian invasion. And, uh, the Turks, they immediately got, uh, drones and, uh, some obsolete equipment over there to them. And, uh, um the uh, American refurbishment is just, they're just dragging their feet about uh, uh, getting this stuff across the border. It's just not, not happening like it should be happening. They should have had those jets, and if they can't give them jets, give them some missile defense. I, I mean, a, a few uh, batteries of uh, missiles would uh, kind of crimp the, uh, the Soviet air power. Uh, substantially, and that those things aren't happening like they should be happening, and I fear that uh, that it may be true that Biden is trying to convince him, uh, Zelensky to strike a deal and give up a quarter or a half of his country in exchange for a quote, and I put it in air quotes, peace. It's not going it, to it's it's not going to happen. I hope. But uh, th- these things, uh, you talk about, and on the other issue that I wanted to go I second of all, is that uh, you you say there's no conspiracy. I don't think there's conspiracy, but I think there's consensus among certain powerful people in the world that, uh, that uh, America needs to go down. And if they could get uh, – if um, – Russia could end up as a vassal state to China, that would be good too. And that, uh, and, uh, they're doing everything they can to drive our economy into the ground because trying to kill the small businesses is just one symptom of what they're doing to destroy this country, this culture. And third of all, about the, uh, African American vote, I think that's wonderful. I don't know uh, whether they'll come back for the general or not. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know I know the situation there, but I I do know that most African Americans have more in common with with, with uh, uh, conservative causes than they have of the liberal elites that are leading them, and with what uh, our uh, Esteemed Congressman uh, Clyburn uh, voices from time to time.
0: Well, then I think Bree said it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Bree said it earlier. You know, pay attention to how they vote. I mean, if you got a set of beliefs that the African Americans ascribe to, and I would argue, I mean, I'm excited today because I'm going to see Herschel Walker tonight. Uh, not because he's a senatorial candidate. He's a kind of a college football hero of mine, um, and that, that excites me. But but Herschel is uh, to me the embodiment of that the argument that we try to make about, you know, African-Americans, I don't want to try and speak for African-Americans. I'm not an African-American. I mean, we have, we have African-American listeners and callers that express themselves, but, but I don't know what, what, I mean, I think it's unfair to say the Chinese think this or the Russians think that, or the Southerners believe this way, or the, the Northeast liberal, that we're all guilty of that to some degree. But I think to paint people with that broader brush is unfair and inaccurate. Um, People have different perspectives. People have different opinions. They have different um, says in things. Um, And I'm going to go back to what Mike said about the conspiracy. I'm not arguing that some of it is not a conspiracy. I mean, I think conspiracies abound. I mean, I do believe there's a reason to be somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. I think the world to some degree is conspiratorial. I just don't think everything around every corner under every rock it's a, um, a conspiracy, and, and to believe that, and I've heard some of these great resetters say that you know, part of the conspiracy is these global um, financial-slash-economic uh, elites are going to collaborate with the politicians uh, who buy into this international high-mindedness. And they're going to depopulate the world so it'll be much easier to institute this one government, this one world order, so to speak, and that COVID was engineered to try and hurry up that process. I just don't buy that. I mean, that takes unbelievable. I mean, that, a global conspiracy on that scale would require um, levels of coordination that I can't imagine are possible. Now, Mike said consensus, and I do believe that there's a consensus. Klaus Schwab, um, head of the World Economic Forum, we touched on this a little bit last week. Uh, one of the most troubling things I've ever heard him say is this Major economies should see the world as one community and should coordinate the objectives, intensity, and pace of physical and monetary policies as one in the same. I mean, that's when he introduced President Xi at the, uh, when he gave the keynote address at the World Economic Forum in January. Let me let me say that again because that, that's a, that's kind of a staggering comment. Most e- most economies should see the world as one community and should coordinate the objectives, intensity, and pace of physical and monetary policies. Xi says something very similar to that. So there is consensus to some degree um, that that not only China but many many other countries need to adapt this um this the state run. Um, the, the state control of economic activities. And, I mean, China already does that. I mean, China controls the majority of its big businesses and, and profitable businesses. Um, the state capitalists in China are in charge of distorting, manipulating very intentionally whatever the economic outcomes are. Schwab also said, um, and this is interesting to me, um, the tyranny of GDP growth. Got to hang on. to he's, he's an economist. He's in his 80s. But he's an economist, and he says, the tyranny of GDP growth. I mean, how do you interpret that? I mean, economic activity, bad. Capitalism, bad. The unleashing of human, um, uh, human capital to derive certain uh, outcomes and prosperity abounds, I mean, that's bad because we don't control it. Now, now the, 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 permanent of the, the permanent expansion of state powers is something I think we can. I mean, I think we can go down this road. But I, I do believe that there are globalists. I think Mitt Romney's one of these. I think the Bushes are, are, are in agreement of this, that that the the permanent expansion of state power um, that Schwab predicts would make um, us all better off in the long run. But because, once again, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Well, I mean, that's impossible for you or I to understand unless it becomes so complicated and we have so much anxiety about owning things. Remember uh, the conversation we had yesterday. About the business owners I've never ever in my life and I've been in business since my early early 20s I've never sensed the level of frustration anger resentment anxiety as I do today I mean I went through some of the numbers in my business world Um, just in property tax alone somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of all the revenue forget you know income tax or uh, fuel tax or all these other sorts of things corporate tax uh, and, I mean, forget all that. just property tax alone. I think the the number I used yesterday, let's say the bank loaned you money to build a business, and they loaned you at five percent. So the people that capitalize your business expect a five percent return. You're the owner of the business, you're trying to figure out a way to make a nine to thirteen percent net return. And the government believes in property tax alone that they're entitled to twenty percent of your of your revenue. I mean, why would you fight that fight? I mean, why wouldn't you acquiesce? Why wouldn't you give in? Why wouldn't you agree that, yeah, life is better to not own anything? anything, I'd probably be a little happier. So I do believe that some of these are very intentional. Now, I don't believe the assessor in Sumter County or the the county council member in Orangeburg County or the city council member in Florence County are going to Davos and asking for their marching orders. I mean, I don't believe that. But I do believe that there is this high-mindedness amongst some of these global elites that have basically um, forced down some of these policies and beliefs. Um, and, and all of a sudden we have, you know, a, a, a business community that find it very underwhelming to own and be in charge of their business enterprise. Um, you're getting up every day. You're working hard. You're trying to make a profit. It becomes harder and harder and harder. We vote down a school referendum and we get a little bit excited because our taxes aren't going up. Next thing you know, the school board decides to raise your taxes by twenty percent. I'm not beating up on the school board. I mean, they believe they need the money to better educate our young people, but but you're 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 basically you're, you're following the script of this great reset. You may not think you're a great resetter. You may think the guy on the radio has lost his mind. But when you increase the tax burden on the men and women who make the wheat, remember the wheat theory? If you make it so expensive and complicated for the wheat uh, maker to make the wheat before long there is no wheat and everybody goes hungry and that's the, that. that's where we're headed and I think that's with the great reset in mind I do believe that there is a kind of a structural consistency consensus to use Mike's words uh that lead me down that road do I do I believe that the the Davos men and women are trying to depopulate the planet and they they basically weaponize COVID I mean you got to go way down the road to be a conspiracy theorist there do, do I believe that that the, the Davos men and women, the financial elites, have coordinated with politicians all over the world to convince school boards you need more and more money and the only place to get it from is the private sector? Yeah, absolutely. And what happens to the private sector when that becomes a reality? It gets more complicated to make a profit. If it's more complicated to make a do we get the world so complicated that it's not worth the pursuit of profit? I mean, In essence, that's the question. I mean, do, do, do the do, does the great resetters, convince local government, state governments, local governments to be so punitive toward the public sector or the private sector that the private sector says, screw it, you can have it. I mean, if I'm going to try to make 9%, you believe 20%, I mean, you're getting 20% and you're telling me that's not enough, so we're going to raise taxes, and then if you make a little more, you pay a little more in tax, there's a little more regulation coming your way, a little more stipulation. Guys, that's where we are. I mean, you can call this conservative talk radio if you'd like. But, I mean, we're there, and and there's a theory called the wheat theory. And and the theory is based upon the premise or notion that if you make it so complicated for the people making the wheat to make the wheat, one day there is no wheat, and everybody goes hungry. And and I'm just afraid that that's where we're headed. Now, now the, the silver lining here, and there's a reason to be a bit optimistic, there's some who believe that this could be the great escape. That technology, the decentralizing uh, of news, the um, uh the the, the way techn cryptocurrency. I mean, I mean, why are people? Why are so many people kind of infatuated with that? So, so in essence, there, there's this great struggle going on, and I do believe that leads to political discontent and uh, and global upheaval. I mean, America's not the only place experiencing a political, uh, somewhat of a political revolution. It's happening all over the world, and and when you start thinking about, you know, um. The number of Americans who are leaving high tax states—I mean, never before in American history have this many people left so many states, moving to other states, and where they're moving from. I mean, the population shift from uh, these expensive, uh, restrictive, poorly governed cities and states. Um, there are more. There are more kids in private school today per capita than there's ever been. So, so the failure of public education. Um, the growing use of cryptocurrency. Um, uh, Once again, I think the most important part, the decentralized media. So there is a reason to be optimistic that we're having this back and forth, yin and yang, to and and fro on, you know, are the great resetters at war with, let's call them the great escapers. And I think the Trump phenomenon, I think Brexit, I think some of the other elections around the world have been um, aimed. I don't think you go to vote saying, I'm voting against the Davos man. I'm voting against Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. But in essence, that's what you're doing. When you leave a high-tax state to move to South Carolina, move to Florida, move to Tennessee, a place that is far more friendly um, in relation to your money, your retirement account, your your, your hard work. You know, we don't tax your hard work. We don't tax the property you own like they do in New York or New Jersey. You know, um, I had a discussion with a school board, not a member, but somebody active in the school board, and they were talking about, you know, our tax rates in South Carolina are still much cheaper than in New Jersey or in New York or in Connecticut or in New Hampshire, and and I'm saying yeah. And look at the average income, look at the price of a three-bedroom, two-bath home. I mean, it's it's incomparable. You can't compare one with the other. I mean, if you're working in New York, if you're working in South Carolina making 50 grand in New York, you do with the same job making 100 grand. So so we, we're going to we're going to ca- kind of transition the taxing. Down south, but not the uh, not not the economic outcomes, not the the salary of the price, uh, the bag of the asset. I mean, the, the absurdity of that argument. But but I do believe the theme of this debate, and we'll take a break here, Reb. The theme of this argument is um, that the permanent expansion of the state power that Schwab predicts, and many government elites have bought into, bought into corporate elites for that matter. I believe that that eventually discourages. Yesterday, we talked about the number of startups in decline. Um, hang on to that. There's a, a, an incredibly interesting conversation to have about this. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is John. Who's going to work. Hey, John, you're on the air.
4: First off, a shout out to, uh, Chris, David, Jacob, and Hayden. Cause I know they listening, um, Ken, I I hate to to rain on the parade a little bit, but those uh, individuals fleeing, those uh, troubled cities, they voted for that mess. They had a part in creating that crap. And the problem is, they come down to nice states like South Carolina and North Carolina and and so on, and they're going to vote the same way, and they're going to destroy same place down here and make it unlivable for everybody else here
8: i'll listen to you on the radio
0: that, that's the great fear i mean that's what a lot of people believe you know that you you go to new jersey you vote all the high taxes in and then the taxes are so damn high you can't afford to live there so you move to south carolina and you come down here and you implement high taxes and more regulations and stricter requirements of business and it complicates these uh, more free places to live yeah that that's a genuine concern um, you know is 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 South Carolina going to rub off on those who didn't grow up here, or are those who didn't grow up here going to move down here and affect change uh, to South Carolina? I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, what do they say? A leopard that changes spots. Um, but but there's there's some genuine concern about that, and we look at at South Carolina in particular.
1: Goes um, back to that redistricting, the redistricting conversation. No, no we question had, about
0: right? it. I mean, let's use Orie County as an example. I mean, if we believe by the year twenty thirty that ORE County will have half a million people. It'll have, what, 8% of all of South Carolina's population. Um, I think we did something projecting 2030, projecting out into 2030, um, Charleston, Greenville, and Horry County will have about 1.6 or 7 million of the 5.5 million people. I don't know about Greenville, but the majority of people moving to Charleston, Mount Pleasant area, the majority of people moving to Orie County, they're not native South Carolinians. I mean, there's some relocation within our state, but Horry County in particular. I mean, we've told the story of Horry County. There is many, There are as many people being born in Horry County as dying. I mean, those numbers are about equal. And 48 new people are migrating into Orie County. 48 people a day, every single day. That's the growth in Horry County. And it's exponential. I mean, it's out of control. It's um, what we're talking about, you know, a lack of growth here. A lot of the elected officials in Horry County and Charleston County, Greenville County to some degree, not as much as Charleston and Horry they're concerned about you know how do we contain the growth? Can, can we can we issue a moratorium and not allow anybody to build anything for six months while we catch our breath and understand stormwater and, and impact fees and all those other sorts of things. But when they come down with their you know um, Boston Celtic sweatshirt, do they do they affect change in Orie County or does Ore County affect change to that person wearing the um, the New England Patriot? you know, uh, baseball cap. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there's any historical precedent here about what happens when people migrate into a state, but there is no doubt that there is no question that that South Carolina is changing. I mean, it's unbelievable how much change is happening in our state. Uh, we're one of the five, what, top five fastest growing states in America by any metric you apply um, and still don't have a major metropolitan area. That's pretty crazy when you get to that. But, um, you know, do, do these people, are they participating in the Great Reset and not know it? I, I don't have any idea. I don't think they have any idea. Here's what I believe they're doing. I believe they, 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 have, they have taken account and they're saying, you know, up here in New Jersey, I mean, you, we, we got a person that works in the radio station that came from New Jersey, and they talked about, I mean, we're complaining about $2,000 a year taxes on, on, a, on a normal home, and I think that's too much. I mean, I still think that's far too much. But if you come from New Jersey— and your taxes were 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 thousand dollars you think you're getting the deal of a lifetime so everything is, is kind of rel- relative and I mean, we you know when you come to South Carolina and you're paying I mean I, and I'm talking about commercial property and, and 388 made it complicated because what 388 basically did without going into great detail 388 took the school operating money off of the primary residents so people along the coast, let's say a, a family who built a beach house 70, 50 years ago, they got an old house. They think it's worth twenty five or $30,000. It's assessed $2 million. And the tax bill comes for $2 million. And a lot of the tax bill is operating, uh, the school operating budget. Guys, here's the bottom line. Here's the crux of the matter. We, we've got to reform radically public education. I mean, in all honesty, that's what it boils down to. Our K through 12 is failing miserably at, at, at educating the people in the way we're funding it and, and I, I get real bothered by those who say well I mean we got to invest more heavily in public education from where I mean if we if, if you're a Democrat and you believe that we're underfunding public education where do you say get the money from because once again I'll give you a business model in in in, in a very real and personal way the bank loans you money at five percent that's their share. That's what they expect to make on the investment you're choosing to, 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 to basically commit your life to. You're a small business man or woman. And I get on my high horse about this because I don't think people passing policy genuinely understand the complications of being in business. And you didn't pass 388. I mean, that was the General Assembly that did that. But you got to be respectful of it and understand it. And for those who say that we've got to have more money for public education, you just simply don't know what you're talking about. I mean, public educators will, will, will argue that there is no amount. It's an infinite amount of money. We need more and more and more and more. Um, people in the government will admit we need more or will suggest we need, where do you get that money from? That's the argument I'm making. I mean, if, if, if um, let's say the county government says we need a little more money. The city government says we need a little more money. The school district says we need a little more money. Where in the hell do you get that money from? There's only one place to take it. And that's from the private sector. The private sector makes the wheat so we can all have wheat to eat. If you continue to punish the wheat maker, we all go hungry. And I'm telling you guys, we are very, very close to that point. And I'm not talking about corporate America. I'm not familiar with corporate America. I don't understand Fortune 50 businesses. I don't know the books at UPS. UPS. I don't understand um, GM's accounting or, or Amazon's profit and the percentage of taxes paid. I mean, we hear stories, but I all I can tell you is the backbone of nearly every community I've ever been in is the small business community that invests locally. I mean, indeed, that, that is the blood, guts, and feathers. That's the wheat maker in every economy. Every local economy, the wheat we all eat is produced by the small business men and women who invest their livelihoods in the success or failure of this private sector endeavor, and people who run the county government need to be aware of that. People who run city government need to be aware of that. People who run state government need to be aware of that. People who run the school districts need to be aware of that. And if everybody says we need more money, then I ask one simple question. Where do you suggest we take that money from, and how much of that business owner's profits are you entitled to? that, That is the crux of the matter. It's, not, it's, it's almost becoming like we're in this thing together. No, we're not in this thing together. The great resetters desire us to be in this thing together. We're not in this thing together. And I think government has become unbelievably punitive at every level in making life more complicated, more difficult, less profitable for small business. And we've got to address that. We've got to understand that with clarity. What's succinct, and that we got to prioritize the effect government policy has on small business. Small businesses were shut down during COVID, and here's one of the most glaring examples of what I'm talking about. Small business in South Carolina was basically shut down, not because of COVID, but because of government's actions relating to COVID. When the government began printing money to dole it out to whomever they felt needed it, South Carolina got about ah. $8.9 8.9 billion dollars. Guess where 6.3 of the 8.9 billion dollars that we don't have but printed, guess where that money ended up? In the public sector. I mean that's state capitalism. That's socialism. There is no other example. I don't care how conservative Republicans we have in the state house. I mean that that's what happened. 8.9 billion allocated to South Carolina, 6.3 billion Went to government agencies. The absurdity of that, the lunacy of that, the insulting nature of that should make all of us deeply concerned. I mean, we're in a Republican state. We're one of the most conservative states in America, and we decided to take 8.9 billion and allocate 6.3 of the 8.9 to the to the government agencies. Now, state legislator, state legislators will rightfully argue that the majority of reason we did that. Is we had no choice. The money came with strings attached. The federal government prioritized the public sector over the private sector, and I've expressed this before, Rev. And it sounds a bit uncomfortable, but the public sector has declared war on the private sector. That doesn't mean the school teacher has declared war on the person running the muffler shop, or the guy driving the backhoe for the county plowing your road has declared war on the guy you know building widgets at a plant in Johnsonville. But the public sector in general, in totality, has declared war on the private sector, and that is part of this great reset, which I hope becomes the great escape. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Morning, Steve.
9: Hey, morning, guys. We're talking about taxes. Um, you're gonna keep them low. You gotta create some new ones. You got marijuana? That would be a brand new tax. I don't partake in it, but if you want to let the uh, degenerate, pay for it, or you go for it. Man, I don't believe you guys have all that much in the gambling, but we got slot machines back in Illinois. Those produce a lot of money for the schools, or allegedly. I don't believe it. But I didn't come down here to vote like Illinois did, and I was born there, you know, moved to Illinois. But I like the state just the way it is.
0: Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. You know, in, in, all the lottery did. You know what? The, I mean, track the numbers of the lottery and track the cost of education. You know what the lottery did? Whatever the lottery raised and was contributed, I mean, in other words, if you get a life scholarship and you get two grand or twenty five hundred or whatever that number is, look at the cost of education, higher education. We're talking about now. You know what happened to the cost of college? It went up about the same amount. Mm-hmm. I've got a story here. We'll get into it in just a bit. National Review had an interesting article about um, the next, um, the most dangerous class of people in America today are going to be the college educated. When, uh, we're generating about two twice as many college graduates as we need for the jobs this economy is creating. Why is this economy not creating better jobs? It's being strangled. It's being devastated by taxes, regulation, and stipulations by whom? The government. Let's go to the phone. Teddy in Columbia. Hi, Teddy. Hey,
9: good morning, guys. Uh, I was in public education for a very long time, and, and what I
11: saw was, you know, I think you need to, I think you Ken, I, I agree with you. You need business-minded leadership. I think you need some type of military-style leadership, too, and uh, rank these teachers, evaluate them a little bit better so you know, who's, you know who are the top teachers at each school. But when I was in it, they were, you know, the, the school leadership was very adverse to pointing out who was doing really bad, who was doing really good. And that's why I got out of it. But anyways, that's
0: that's all I got. Thank you. Appreciate that. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If I were superintendent of education, the most popular group of people, I would be most popular with this group of people, the really good employees, the good school teachers, the good administrators, the good custodians. I mean, it would be a true meritocracy. If you're good at your job, we're going to make sure you're well compensated. If you're not, find something else to do. But education has morphed into something that eh, everybody's kind of, you know, these teachers need to make about the same. The good ones make about the same as the bad ones. And that's just the the absurdity of that. And once again, it's unbelievably funded, and they don't believe it. So, So where do you get the money from? I mean, how much more money do you think you can extract from the private sector and allow the private sector to still generate and turn a profit? Back in a minute. I guess the point I'm trying to make, I got a couple of minutes here before I hard break top of the hour. The point I'm trying to make is I mean, the great resetters. Wow, I sound like Beck. I mean, the, the great <laughs> resetters are, once again, there are varieties and levels of great resetters. I am, I am in agreement that there is a consensus. There's too many things, has. I mean, you would expect America to be the outlier. I mean, Xi and some of these other state capitalist countries or socialist countries, I mean, you, you would expect them to kind of fall in line and, you know, the the international high-mindedness that goes along with it, but you would expect America to to not buy into that. I mean, we um, do
1: have a constitution and a representative republic and supposedly independence, right?
0: Yeah. And free. Those words mean something. Well, let me, sure, Revit, and here's the deal, you know, the the—, the the principles of our government are still unbelievably sound. We just don't govern that way anymore. We just simply do not. Um, what would Jefferson say? Or what would what would Franklin say? Hamilton may have a different opinion, but what would the majority of our founders? I mean, they struggled with a 1% income tax. And now we're debating whether it should be 30 or 35. Um, all of a sudden, 10% of, or 20% of your revenue, i mean if you're a commercial developer 20 percent of your revenue goes to the government in the name of property tax i'm not talking about anything i mean what do you, you when you say we have a representative republic to, to a degree we do no, no question about it but we have this this class of people and 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 we're, we're 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 hesitant to be so confrontational because we're kind of all in this thing together you know G says or she said this highlighted i actually read some of his speech translated of course um, cause I don't speak Mandarin. Um, but he said during his address at the world economic forum, that small boats may not survive a storm, but a giant ship is strong enough, uh, in a storm. So he's basically saying, as long as we're interconnected, as long as we're in this thing together, um, but what happens when we're all in one boat and the storm gets bad enough to turn that one boat over that then we all sink. And I think we've given in and I, and I, I do believe this. I think the the principal mistake we've made as the American public is allowing these things to happen. It's a little bit like frog in the in the pot. I mean you've heard the story. Uh, you drop a frog in a pot of a you know 200 degree wa- water, he jumps out. If you put him in five degree and six degree and eight degree and ten degree and 12 I mean you'd be dies, he burns well I mean that's kind of what we've been uh, victimized of. We, we're guilty of that. We, we've not we've not stood our ground now, now I do believe, that some of the uh, some of the great escapees we're talking about the great resetters some of the great escapees um, are those who've left Illinois or left New Jersey or, or left some of these high tax states very restrictive um, living expensive restrictive poorly governed and they've come to other places to call home um, I do believe the exodus from some of these public schools are very reflective or indicative of people you know just not believing they're getting bang for their buck. Uh, the kids aren't reading at the proper level. They're not performing proficiently in contrast to this. Um, I mean, we have a global marketplace. we got to compete in that global marketplace, and our education scores are not proficient. Here's the travesty in that. Rev takes his kid out of a public school because he just doesn't believe the public school is serving his family's needs. Guess what Rev's taxes are for funding public schools? They're the same. I mean, they're, uh, explain that to me. How can, you, how can any sane or rational person rationalize that? That there's money on Rev's taxes to fund public education. Rev decides that public education is not performing adequately and he wants to give his kid a better shot to be educated. Rev still has to pay for public education. I mean is, is that is that representative Republic? I mean is that democracy? Explain to me how I mean how did we get there I mean how did we get to a place where if Rev Rev has a kid Rev loves that kid. Rev wants his kid to have the best opportunity education you could possibly imagine. So Rev pays for his kid to go to a private school. Rev still has to pay for his kid not to go to that failing public school. Where's the logic in that? Where's the rationale? There is none. That's why they shut people down when they have to try or have try to have that debate. Back in a minute. 843 6610937. So, Rev, are you a great resetter or a great escaper?
1: <laughs> I'm I'm more interested in the more I'm hearing about this great resetter. I'm not interested in the reset, but I'm interested to hear what the heck is up with you know, these people thinking.
0: Friedrich Hayek called central planning the fatal conceit. He also said, and this is so interesting, I mean, Hayek was one of these um, scholarly uh, economists, but he said, the curious task of economics is is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. I mean, this was in The Road to Serfdom, I think is where he said that. But um, uh, central planning has been around for a long, long, long time. Hayek called it the great, excuse me, the fatal conceit. And, and I just believe that we are beginning to express ourselves um, as great escapers by the way we're moving from expensive, restrictive you know, high-tax states, um, more and more kids are going to private schools, being removed from public schools. Um, something that's crazy the growing use of cryptocurrency. I mean, what have we argued on the show before? The reason the government's real um, suspicious or leery of crypto is they wonder whether they can control it or not. So, um, so, so technological advancements and progress um, could, I don't know if it will or not, could outpace the ability of the state and governments and politicians to control and regulate economic and, and personal matters for that, um, for that reason. Let's go to the phone.
12: Here is Carl. Morning, Carl. Hey guys. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Hey Carl. Hey, um, I wanted to give you a defense of public education from an economic perspective. Okay. When, um, when it was first put into place, well, before you had it, before you had public education, the only kids who really got educated were the uh, kids of parents who had the money to get someone in to teach the child how to read and teach the child how to write, teach the child how to do math and so forth. And that was all well and good. But as technology and as the workplace you know, differentiated away from agriculture and away from things where you didn't have to know anything. A- intellectually. Then, um, we, you know, just regular, regular people who were smart all that whole time, but they were just poor and not poor, but they weren't rich. Uh, you know, your carpenters or your, um, your plumbers or whoever was in the town that, you know, farmers and did this stuff like that. Um, You know, they said, well, we, you know, it'd be nice if my child could have that as well. And so that's where schools first started, you know, kind of propping up where um, you were sending regular kids to school. Now, one, you didn't have families who could really afford to pay for a big tutor. And so you have a remnant, not really a remnant, but it is a remnant. There's not been a proliferation of like, elite boarding schools, the ones that have been around since, you know, the 1700s and 1800s are still there, but you don't have, you know, thousands and thousands of them. And now they've, they've taken on, um, you know, more diverse uh, group, but the purpose of the public education was to have a place for the kids to go. That was the main reason, have a place for the kids to go while the parents worked during the day, and you were killing two birds with a stone. That is a, that is a linchpin of economics. How many birds can you kill with one stone? They were killing the bird of, this child is learning, uh, some academics learning how to read, write, and be a productive member of society, being literate and having you know numeracy, knowing how to count and take care of business like that. While at the same time, we are able to do our jobs, and then, you know, come back together as a family once school is over. Uh, and so what parents need to do, and they're the main ones, um, and I, I I, advise and encourage everyone who can afford to, to send your kid to a, a private school because you are able to have much more sway and uh, control over what gets – Taught in those schools, what um, what kids are able to do and not do, and what teachers are able to teach and not teach, then you haul it with a, a public school, and don't apologize for that, and get as many of your friends to go there if you, as much as you can afford. To do that, because you will find in the public schools there's going to be kids with a lot of home problems with a lot of mental problems, and they, they just take everyone on there and then you have you know other you know, rich parent rich kids at those schools too, but you know it was all economic to begin with, and so we can't say, well, you know this u- public utility that we call a school here, which if it 's a good school is going to bring you know, good industries to this area. Am I willing to pay for that or not? Well, yeah, I was willing to pay for it if I have kids or if I was going to it, but I'm not willing to pay for your kids to go there. That's not how that works. And if you, you know, start, you know, start thinking about it that way, then your school district is going to go down. I'll give you the the best example in the state of South Carolina, Clarendon County. That was the district where you had Briggs versus Elliott, which was a board, Brown versus Board of Education. That same Supreme Court um, case. The, the school district down there now is like 97% black, but Clarendon, well, that that area, that Summerton area, but Summerton has a lot of white people live there, and they send their kids to the private school. and so not that that's a bad thing, but the, you know they they just abandoned the public schools down there. And so, um, but do you go to other places like, um, Mount Pleasant, most of the kids at that at those public schools are white and they have excellent programs because you get a, you get an economy of scale where you can get top notch teachers giving top notch education and everyone you know, paying into it. And is not a burden so much to any individual family,
0: Carl. If African American families were given an opportunity to go to private schools at a greater rate, in other words, if we had a voucher, I think the numbers. I mean, it's a little better than fifteen thousand dollars per pupil spending in South Carolina. I looked at some of the general revenue appropriations. I don't want to go to the. It's somewhere around fifteen grand per child in twenty. Uh, 122 that's about a six or seven percent increase from the previous year they're flush with cash they're spending some of this money in education but but if an african-american family had the ability to take that fifteen thousand dollar voucher and send their kid to a private school you got any idea what percentage would
12: um well a lot of them would but you gotta you have to approach this from why why that would even be put in place for private schools to begin with you had private schools start up in South Carolina my mom is still living and she went to the segregated she went to segregated schools when she was young and then by by the time she graduated she was like one of the first class of of um integrated schools here is why white people did not really want to go to school with black people. A lot of people want, want to make it sound like they were monsters. That was not the case. You had two different societies. The black and, and she will tell any old older black person will tell you the black kids at black schools at that time were very well behaved. They were very respectful. But even the ones who were, um, you know, hell racers. The, the black teachers and the parents and the administrators were able to keep those kids in check, but it was the same case in the white schools. All of those kids were not angels in the white schools. And she told me that. And then I know older white people that said the same thing. You had hell raising kids in the, in the white school, but the white administrators, the white um, community leaders, and the white parents were able to keep those families in check and keep their kids in check. The fear with, from white people, was that if you mixed up these races, that it would be difficult for the white administrators to check the behaviors of the black kids because people would think that they were just hating, hating on them because they were black. Now, if you, the, the way I feel as far as pu- um, public school is concerned, I think everyone should apply to public school and everyone should have a transactional piece of money to give, whether that is a voucher or whatever. So if you say, okay, I want to go to this public school. Okay. I got these kids. I am applying for all my kids to go to whatever school. Okay. There's an agreement that you make because this happens with, with private schools. You have an agreement on your behavior. You have this. You have to uh, uh, not only just have a code of conduct, you have consequences if you don't follow it, especially now, because if you get if you, you sign a contract and my kids are going to behave, they're not going to bring drugs to school. They're not going to fight at school. They're not going to misbehave and do, do this con- you know, chronically. Then even if you kick them out, they can go online and get this education because that's the new economy is that you don't have to be in one place to learn how to do things. Now, there's still the benefit of having kids in one place so that they learn to socialize, they, so they learn how to interact with other kids and other adults and become real people, because you can't do that in front of a computer. But if a child is so disruptive that they just you know, are causing the environment to be uh, non-productive, then there's nothing else you can do, and they can get sitting sitting to in front of a computer, even if 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 it's at a building where all the other kids in the building are the same disruptive hellraisers. They're all in front of a computer all day in a box, and then they're doing their work and they go home. But the you know the way we the way the activists are doing it now is that no, you have to put up with this that or the other thing but black parent black black people have always wanted the same treatment as white people and so you know the fact that we uh you know on on average don't have the same money i think most black people honestly would still send their kids to public schools if they could be guaranteed that um you're going to deal with the kids that are messing
1: it up interesting
0: thank you Carl. appreciate that very detailed see carl gives an opinion and a perspective that is not allowed in the mainstream i mean that's an african-american guy very interesting very engaging um expressing his opinion in a way that is contrary to what i'd argue is the national narrative and 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 that's we need more i mean that that inspires me i mean i've told carl this before i mean those voices like that that those expressions such as that are inspirational to me because I think we do some good there. I mean, I'm not sure what we do here. I'm not sure how you quantify what it is we do here every day. What is a what is a four-hour debate or conversation worth? I don't have any idea. But at times it's real, and at times it's stirring, and at times uh, you know there's some good in there. And I think when an African-American expresses himself in a way contrary to the national narrative, it's important. And and it's to be valued and it's to be appreciated and and I admire Carl for calling in and and being willing to express himself in a way that um, is is not you know the, the majority of African American opinions are not expressed as as Carl's is and I think we need more voices like Carl engaged in these debates talking about public education um, you know th- th- there's a long history if I'm not mistaken I could be but um the pers- the first public school I't know it would have been the American colonies, the thirteen colonies, but it was in Boston somewhere in the mid 1600s uh, somewhere there about middle of 16 middle of 17th century 1645 or somewhere there about. but when you get to the modern era of public education, um Carl touched on it but I'll kind of expand the modern era of college excuse me the modern era of public education K through 12 is a derivative of the Vanderbilts and the Fords and the, the Carnegies of the world. Um, we were beginning an industrial revolution, and we needed an educated workforce. Why do you think we line up in lines and we ring bells and somebody's got to be somewhere by a certain time? It was to basically train factory workers. I mean, it really was. I mean, when you look at, I mean, I've read a lot about this, the, the Vanderbilts of the world, the Henry Fords of the world. It almost sounds
1: uh, conforming rather than educating well, I mean, it, when it, it, you when you put it that way.
0: There, what well, it was. There was a lot of conformity to this. I mean, if you work on an assembly line, conformity is a big deal. Consistency is a big deal. Repetition is a big deal. So when that bell rings, you better get your butt to X, Y, or Z. When we marched to lunch, the smallest kids in the front, the biggest kids in the back, um, yeah, all of those things are a product or a byproduct of um the Carnegies and the Henry Fords and the um you know these industrialists, the, the, these these industrialists that amassed enormous fortunes during the industrial revolution, um they said, not only do we educate these kids, we prepare them to be real good factory workers. So, yeah, I mean th- there was a um not so subliminal message in all of that. Um, I think we need a radical reformation. In public education, and and I guess this is where I become a, a tealist, so to speak, not a realist, a tealist, <laughs> because Peter Thiel argues that education in America today, K through twelve and higher education, cannot be tweaked. It's got to be radically, radically, and aggressively reformed. Let's go to the phone,
1: Jeff in Florence. Good morning,
0: Jeff. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Hey, um. Hey, how are you doing? What did you agree with Sean Hannity today about? <laughs>
11: oh i didn't uh okay I, I, I didn't uh but i i did want to talk about uh the uh voucher system that's being floated again floated first by george w bush um you know that is nothing but a defund education movement um r- real quick uh defund so public education it, yes it's a defund public education okay uh scenario um you know, if, if, you made the, if, if Rev has uh, no children, why should he have to pay taxes
0: for school? No, I said if Rev has a is child that, that he decides to send to a public school, or excuse me, a private right, school, right. why is he still paying for public school?
11: Right. Um, and so if somebody lives in an apartment and doesn't pay property tax, should they get that voucher also?
0: Mm, that, that's a fair debate. I mean, I, I'd be very interested in smart people sitting around a table hashing some of those um, intricacies out.
11: Yeah, so there's that. And, and let me ask you, you you're an uh, inland waterways guy. Like, you've lived in South Carolina your whole life. I'm sure you enjoy the beach and the intercoastal waterway down there. hmm Yeah. Do you know the federal government pays for that, right? The charging, sure the maintenance. Right. Should somebody in Nebraska have to pay for that?
0: For the intercoastal waterway? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would argue that people in South Carolina pay for farm subsidies that the people in South Carolina Nebraska um Man, disproportionately our, our benefit from forms,
11: our tax forms are going to look real complicated if we go and say we're
0: only going to pay for what we use but don't but, you think yeah but but Jeff uh, let, 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 let's back up a half step and let's start this argument sure. do you believe government in America is broken
11: I, I mean I believe it's no different than it's always been you, you 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 seem to think it's a new phenomenon
0: no it's it's an incredibly new phenomenon When when, when property taxes go up 20% when the income tax starts at one percent, it becomes thirty-five or six or seven percent. When uh, when unrealized income is, uh, excuse me, when unrealized capital gains is is treated as income, yeah, I mean that's fundamentally different. It, I mean, has it always been broken? Has it always been uh, where some people perceive it to be unfair? Yeah, but is there a tipping point? The the point I'm trying to articulate, I accept an income tax. What what is too expensive an income tax? Um unrealized capital gains is all of a sudden going to be classified and categorized as income. Um, can government become so broken that, that it just doesn't work nor function any longer, nor serve the American public?
11: Right. Uh, listen, you mentioned one thing there, the unrealized capital gains. Is that fair? No, it isn't. That's a ridiculous uh, premise to, to go on. But we, we, we start to have to fundamentally look at our tax code. We did have a flat tax. Ronald Reagan Tip O'Neill, in the 1980s, they came up with a tax bracket that was flat. Do you recall this at mm-hmm. all? I do. Have you read about this? Sure. I mean, that's that's good government, okay? And in, in the 90s, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich they worked together, and they came up with a fair tax code that worked for everybody and and reduced, eliminated, and made a surplus in our government spending. Nothing's wrong with government but our
0: representation. So what do we do, Jeff? I mean, if you agree to some, maybe not, maybe not to the extent that I do, but but if we fundamentally agree that government is broken and not not uh, properly serving, not effectively serving the constituency, we're misrepresentative. Say again. We're mis we're misrepresentative. Okay, okay, you and I agree on that. We're misrepresented. So 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 if term limits poll eighty percent. Um, nothing polls 80 or 90 percent of America except term limits. Um, would you, as a reformer, I mean, if we agree that government has to do better, we must demand and expect better of government. Ma- maybe you disagree how to get there, and I. Di- but why can't we find six or eight things that we do agree on, and we press forward on those six or eight things that makes your life better, that makes my life. We can still have these ideological disagreements. We we can have these arguments uh, respectfully with one another. But but if we agree, if eighty percent of Americans believe that the government is uh, we're, we're terribly represented within our representative republic, why can't we do better? What what is the roadblock or impediment? Is it me? Is it you? Is it both of us?
11: Well, I, I, I believe that the system has some 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 things in place. Uh, big corporations pick your candidates now. The uh, Americans um, uh, United, um, allowing dark money,
0: Citizens United.
11: Uh, Citizens United. Mm-hmm. Sorry, thank you. I'll agree with um, you there. That, that may surprise you, but I totally agree with you there. 100%. I know you would. I mean, it, it's, it's, and, and you're right. Uh, it is, this money is picking your candidates. You go to the poll and you think you're making a choice when you go out in the primary. You're not. You've been bought and sold by corporations when that happens. We need to get that out of there. We need to get back to non millionaires, billionaires running for Congress. That's, listen, it, we, we have become what the founding fathers warned us about. Okay. It, it is the system is, is designed because of the campaign money. We, we no longer have a, a choice unless, unless we change the laws. And, and you have to ask yourself, and, and I'm, we're going to disagree.
9: The,
11: the, the Republican party has embraced this to a point where and, and the Democrats have too. I'm not saying they haven't taken money. They they're the ones that kill a lot of uh reform and change. But this this marriage, like they love to bash big corporations. And when you look at the people who are in the news, yeah, sure. They are the ones that uh the Bill Gates. They you everybody thinks they're liberal. They just keep getting richer the more money they donate. You know, and you're not looking at the people who are are putting all that campaign money and the dark money in. It's the, we just have lost our government to big corporations.
0: I don't disagree. Thank you, Jeff. We got to take a break. Um, See a guy that disagrees with another guy can have respectful conversations here. And I don't know that Jeff and I are on different planets. I mean, on some issues, we have a fundamental divide and we'll never get past that divide. He believes X, I believe Y. But on some of these issues, there's a great deal of overlap. And that's encouraging to me. Back in a minute. Hey, we don't clear the deck for many people, but we do clear the deck for those who have been with us when it made no sense to be with us. Right, Rev? <laughs> yes, I mean, loyalty's a big deal in our world. And when right. we went out to McCall Farms in Effingham and said, hey, I'm about to start a radio show and I need some sponsors. And they said, what can we do? And the rest as we say in paris and pamplico is histoire so here we are um <laughs> and they're still for, here they're still here and we're still here um i don't think they believe we'd still be here but here we are and they've got an issue bacall farms as many other employers are dealing with labor issues people uh whether or not wanting to work or just can't come to whatever whatever the issues are businesses around this country are struggling in finding employees sue courtney is the hiring office manager she's with us this morning as well as claudia soto uh, both are here this morning to um to let our listeners know that if you want to work or know someone who wants to work there are abundance of opportunities out at mccall farms Sue, good morning how are you
13: good morning ken so,
0: so, so i'll let you explain to our listeners um why you're here and what sort of opportunities are at uh, mccall farms
13: i will be glad to we are very proud to be representing mccall farms mccall farms has been an Business Well over 100 years, it's a family owned company and we're very proud to work there. They take care of their employees and so much so that during these trying times, they've come up with some really unique incentives for people that want to come work at McCall Farms. So not only did we just go through the biggest pay increase in the history of the company, all of our co-presidents came before all members of the staff, everybody, and explained some unique opportunities. One is we're doing like a fuel perk bonus people so like we know that fuel is high we know that people are having difficulty getting to work because of gas prices so what our company is doing is people that come to work that show up on time that do what they're supposed to you know you got to be there on your schedule time you got to be on time if you do that you're getting a weekly bonus just that you can spend any way you want to it doesn't have to be on gas but if you need gas money you got it
0: and that's something you guys have incorporated because of the labor shortage because of the difficulties. Claudia um, you're here you're not the hiring office manager but here on behalf of McCall Farms. Um, it is a struggle now to find people who want to come to work and will come to work.
13: Yes sir good morning. good morning to everybody. yeah I'm working on McCall Farms for 22 years mm. and it's a good place for come to work. Um, it's good opportunities um, and we need people. We need people we need a lot of people
0: and it's a local company it's a homegrown company literally and figuratively as um has been here well over 100 years so if someone hears you or here's claudia and they're interested what do they need to do
13: um we've made it really easy okay so we have a hiring office that's not even in the plant. it's across the highway from the plant so it's in the american legion building on south Irby street in effingham across the highway from the plant american legion building Go in there between 7 a.m. 6 p.m. We've extended hours. We're doing everything we can to make it easy. Come on in. We'll process your paperwork, talk to you about opportunities. Not only about opportunities, Kim, we'll talk to you about career paths because we want people to come in even whenever they aren't experienced in a way, but if they have a direction they want to go in, work with us. Let us help you get those opportunities. Let us help you advance. We're looking for people that are going to come and stay get on a career path with us, and retire from us.
0: What, what sort of oper- – I'll ask either of you ladies, um, either you can answer, what sort of jobs are available? I mean, what, what sort of jobs are there out at McCall Farms?
13: We have plenty of maintenance opportunities. Maintenance department is, um, is a very diverse group because they take care of everything from um, all of our equipment, all of our machines, all of our – um, canning machines, all of our refrigerated, freezer, everything, freezer, label line, label line. Mm-hmm. We have all kinds of maintenance positions. We have um, clerk positions. We have um, forklift
0: drivers. Oh forklift God, drivers. yes,
13: yeah. yeah, yeah. Cycle counters. We have I- I- anything you mm-hmm. anything you can think of. We have a way to fit you in there.
0: And you're going to take good care of these people. I mean, you've been there 22 years. 22. Mm-hmm. Sue's a hiring office manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and and as these ladies have said, it's not just a job for a week or two. Right. They want you to kind of entrench yourself in this company and make a career of it. Um, they're good to you. I've kind of made a pleasure of my employees. I'm good to you. You're good to me. Right. And that and that's sense. the way the economy has to work. So so once again, if someone's listening, they can show up today. They can like,
13: come right now. Go to the hiring office, which is located on um, at. 6466 South Irby Street in Effingham. It's the American Legion building. We've got signs and flags out there so people will know where they're going. Just come out, bring a picture ID, social security card, and we'll have you working tomorrow.
0: Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. I can hear somebody, what sort of money are we talking about? I mean, is it $5 an hour? Is it $6 an hour? No, so so tell as much or as little of that as you'd like.
13: Depending on what job they're applying for, they can make 15 they can make 20 they can make $30 an hour. Okay? And then on top of the wages, you've got to think about that incentive bonus that I talked about. That's an extra $50 a week just for coming to work on time. Okay, if Buy you're your there gas, today, yeah, you know, that's an extra $200 a month that we're going to give you just for showing up. There's all kinds of incentives that people want to work overtime to make extra money. A lot of times we'll have people that'll say, well, can I work overtime? Of course you can work overtime, you know. Okay. Um, You can make as much money as you want.
0: Okay. Well, thanks to both of you for being here. Thank and make you. sure the people at McCall Farms know how much we appreciate uh, their support of this, what we call a feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. Thanks to both of you.
13: Thank you so Thank much, Gill.
0: We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Some people would say this has been a diverse show. Others would say we couldn't stay on topic. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're rambling about talking <laughs> the about,
1: about a lot full. of
0: different things. Um, at times, my busy head syndrome is absolutely uncontrollable, and um, and I may have drank too much Diet Pepsi yesterday. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it. this I was kind of riled up this morning, ready to ready to go. Um, tomorrow is a different day, and we'll try to be a little more a little less diverse and more on topic, and uh, and do a tutorial sort of show. But um, the great resetters of the great, uh, what was the other? The great escape. Yeah, the great escapers. Uh, That was kind of uh, one of the topics of today's show. Enjoy your day, and we'll talk tomorrow.